Would you marry me? Yes. Why? Because I want to. Not because you love me or anything like that, huh? I respect and admire you. Isn't that love? No, that's respect and admiration. I think that's better than love. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole. I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm very excited because we have another return guest, also from Row3.com and Twitch Film. The spectacular Kurt Halfyard is here with us once again. Welcome back, Kurt. Uh, glad to be back. How are you guys doing tonight? Excellent. How are you? I am uh, most fantastic. I've been all heartlyed up and I'm ready to go. Cool. Yeah, That is who we're going to be talking about this episode, Hal Hartley. Um, seminal <laughs> 90s independent filmmaker. Uh, his work, the past decade, not so acclaimed, but you know we'll get more into that later. Uh, um, I, I bought a lot of opium for Patrick to smoke. Yeah, which will hopefully mm-hmm. curb his. Uh, well, every rage. time I yeah, every time I start feeling the uh, the hatred that I usually start feeling whenever I start talking about how I'm going to just start uh, chasing that dragon. Please, and we'll do. be all right. Uh, I, I, I do promise uh, we're, it's not going to be a Matt Gamble in the De Palma episode situation. I'm not going to. I, I, I mean, I would say that watching. I think I only watched. Yeah, I only watched uh, four Three, of his movies yeah. in the in the past two weeks. But that was enough for me to sort of claim he's my least favorite filmmaker ever. Uh, but I, you know, there it's. We'll get more into more into that later, but I, I well, as someone who has endured Matt Gamble for many episodes, <laughs> um, you're more than welcome. I, uh, from my end, I'm used to it. Usually, the rage is directed at me, so uh, I've I've gotten pretty thick yeah. skin when it comes to the sort of shenanigans that Gamble can conjure up. I, it's mostly just bewilderment. It's, it's yeah, it's bewilderment, uh, and but it it's it like uh, we we were talking before the show. Uh, you know, I, I imagine many people have, uh, at least just based on sort of comments I've seen on my Facebook status stuff, many people have never seen a Hal Hartley movie, and mm-hmm. they're very easy to avoid. A lot of the better ones, like, or, you know, a lot of the ones that are claimed to be the better ones by people who aren't me. <laughs> <laughs> like, some Trust. Of them, some of them aren't even available on DVD. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, Trust, not available on DVD. Unless you get, like, a region-free player or whatever. Oh, yeah. But, you know... Hey, that was on Instant for a while. Not not so. I think the only How Hartley yeah. on Instant now is. I wonder why Monday. they took it off. I don't know. I don't understand the expiration issue with they, Netflix. They, they pay for the rights for a certain amount of time. And, yeah. Uh, I I feel like the ones that are harder to find should be more readily available on Netflix Instant. You know. Yeah. Well, I wish. You know. Yeah. I mean, maybe they had to clear some room for for Wit Stillman's like three movies. True. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely. Uh, well, we'll get into it, but my goodness, so I, I, I'd, I'd never seen a, I'd only seen Trust before you guys sort of. So I'm not coming in as an expert by any mm-hmm. means. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm here as a sort of fresh eyes. The only thing I'd seen is Trust in a random sort of viewing sense when it was brand new in the in the early 1990s. Probably saw it the same year that Reservoir Dogs came out. Same and, here. And, but in hindsight, um, it's like Hal Hartley. You said seminal earlier. That's exactly. Right. It feels like here's a guy that sort of had about three years on Whit Stillman, Wes Anderson, and Quentin Tarantino, and uh, and, and those three guys, yeah. and Kevin Smith, absolutely, and the, all those guys 
uh, ended up, you know, with, well, fairly large degrees to one degree or the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people had expected Henry Fool to sort of be a, a mainstream success because it had all this uh, critical acclaim from major critics, but also... It won the uh, Screenplay Award at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, It it just seemed like that was going to be his uh, claim to fame and be able to move on. But it's still it's it's still a typical Hal Hartley vehicle, you know. (laughs) So I'm not expecting I wasn't expecting him to ever really have that sort of mainstream success. I was just interested in the style and we'll get more into that very soon absolutely in fact you know really briefly i'm not going to read the whole email but we did get one email and it mentioned something very funny because uh she she thinks that we are hilarious when we disagree right and it's been a while since patrick and i have uh disagreed um so (laughs) you'll you'll have a lot to look forward to certainly uh, not on a director we've disagreed about Martha Marcy May Marlene and Melancholia. And- yeah, and she brought that up in the email, but I figure we're just going to save that for our best of episode because we'll yeah. both bring those titles up once um, again. Real quick, she did also bring up in her email that she wondered why we weren't reading emails at the beginning of episodes anymore, and she rightly she rightly guessed that we haven't really been getting any. Not so, too much. Not too much. You think you have something to say? You want you know you want to you want to tell us something? We love getting emails, so go ahead and yeah. send them to a Directors Club Podcast at gmail dot com. You know. And uh, as always, be sure to um, visit iTunes if you have a free moment. You know, go over there, type up a little review, maybe just click on the stars. It helps us out. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. It's totally awesome when you guys contribute. Yeah, unless, yeah, people have been really good about that. So, and uh, you know, just just to sort of preface too, um, our next official episode will be um, around like the first or second week of January when we do our best of. And if you want to start emailing in your best of the year lists feel free so we can compile them because it is going to be an episode where it's just me and patrick uh talking with each other mm-hmm. it's just going to be me and him and it's we like definitely want uh as many top 10 lists we can sort of look at and share with our, our listeners so uh-huh. we encouraging all the uh past guests too so kurt when the time is ready you know first week of january if you have your top 10 ready to go I'll drop that little bomb on you. Please do. It'll be awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, for the Christmas season, we're going to be springing on two other episodes. One of them, which I don't know how it got lost, but it's for some reason it got deleted from our feed. And we'll be uh, putting back episode 15, I believe, which is just basically us going through our favorite movies. Uh-huh. In which I listed Falling Down as one of my ten favorite movies. Looking wow. back, don't know why... Uh, <laughs> and Step Brothers. I love no. I love Step Brothers. That's fine. That's I, I, fine. Step That's Brothers fine. is one of the funniest, like most rewatched comedies I've ever had. But uh, I mean, whatever. I, I just thought, <laughs> I was thinking about that before, and I was like, there are so many movies I like more than Falling Down. But I do love Those Falling Down. Change. Yeah. I mean, as even as you were talking about how you've grown to discover that Robert Altman is your favorite director. I really do think deep down that Paul Thomas Anderson could... I mean, he's at the number two spot, but I... I yeah. I mean, as much as I love Sam Raimi, he's made some clunkers, and I feel... I feel like if 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 somebody were to ask me, well, what do you want from a, a movie every time you go in? Pretty much Paul Thomas Anderson gives me everything I want with every yeah. movie he makes. He has yet to stumble, that's for sure. I think yeah. we're going to be uh, talking about him next year, right? We're going to be doing We definitely will. We definitely will. Excellent. We'll have, probably have Steve Procopi from Ain't It Cool News on to join us for that episode. Awesome. So that would be great. That's Capone, right? Yeah. Awesome. Capone from Ain't It Cool News. Yeah. yeah. 
it'll be okay, a good show. Okay, cool. Um, in right. the meantime, let's go ahead and talk about what we watched this week. If you're only watching TV, I feel bad for you, son. I watched 99 movies, but the Switch ain't one. Reservation Road, Inner Space and Go. Jacob's Ladder, Jackie Brown, Ace in the Hole. Movie critics say I get too emotional. I cried at the notebook. Fearless in the road, didn't see Marley and me, but a dog dies, I know. I hated Bellflower, didn't care for blow. Couldn't get through the spirit, or Superman 4. If you don't like Jason's lyric, you can press fast forward. Three Amigos, Donnie Darko, Koi, Yanniskatsi. I wonder what other movies we watched this week. If you're only watching TV, I feel bad for you, son. I watched 99 movies, but the Switch ain't one. Rocky! <laughs> you're crazy for this one, McGee. Kazam! Yes. Kurt, why don't you go first? We've been asking the guests to go first. Sure. Um, well, I got into an advanced screening of the new girl with the dragon tattoo redo, uh, re going back to the source material, David Fincher making a movie that's way beneath him, um, <laughs> which pretty much co- says where – I come in on this movie. I, don't get me wrong. The movie is handsome. Every penny invested in David Fincher's particular sort of you know, meticulous style is on screen. And for the most part, the performances are fine. Um, and, and, and I kind of like the fact that he uses the film as an experiment. Uh, he does some things that are I won't say verboten in hundred million plus film productions, but mm-hmm. I, I guess it's kind of in the in the same vein as Soderbergh's Oceans Twelve or Really? Um oh. or for that matter Soderbergh's Solaris. Um <laughs> to where he's he's got a huge budget and yet he's doing something that is interesting to him. But that's only a small portion of the film. The, the, the problem, the fundamental problem with the girl with the dragon tattoo is that that material um, is comic book material. And it doesn't really – somehow it does not make a, a weighty picture like with what Fincher did with Zodiac or Fight Club or, or even Seven. Well, feels I mean, weightier than Dragon Tattoo. I would I would say that was actually one of the reasons I'm excited because what I like like I think I I like when David Fincher takes on sorry because I think the script for Seven is not nearly as good as the movie uh, and I, I I and Seven is actually the movie I was thinking of when I was thinking about reasons I'd be excited about this because I I think uh, a lot of his movie like he he's very clinical and like his and I, I, I like it when he does movies that, you know, that can afford to be gorgeous and not necessarily so warm and hu- you know warm mm-hmm. and human and uh, like Alien Three. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, Alien yeah. Three, yeah. The, the classic movie, but it's completely insect-like in its execution. It's it's very uh, it's very distancing as a movie. Yeah, when I saw the trailer for it, I really liked the rhythm of it and how it was put together, and I'm not necessarily expecting that from the movie itself. I, I hated the trailer. I know. Um, <laughs> but, like, uh, when I saw it, I was like, okay, yeah, it, it could be, you know, Seven mixed with maybe some of the procedural aspects of Zodiac. It certainly has the same length uh, as Zodiac. Yeah, it, it ain't short. And this material does not 
It's the same way that a Transformers movie or whatever, like, why do these things have the need to be bloated out to, like, well past the two-hour mark? Oh, really? Yeah, it's like two hours and four and a half. Yeah, and and part of that problem is is that um, the I don't recall this in the first in the Swedish version, but they're clearly building this as part one of a franchise and not a standalone movie. There, and and the franchise is going is clearly designed to be anchored around the Blomqvist Salander relationship like mm-hmm. that that's actually the fundamental difference between this and the swedish film is that while they both dick around for 40 minutes before the two main characters even meet right um when the characters do finally meet the whole movie is about their relationship and the actual mystery which was to me in the swedish version completely the focus how are hmm. they going to solve yeah. this you know clue on an island kind of mystery in the new one they don't even like they it's lit the, the investigation is lip service at best none of the characters certainly none of the vanger family are even characters they're, they're like a scene each so it's not a, um, it's not a procedural like zodiac or anything it well the, the problem is is that it still occupies a good you know two-thirds of the runtime but it doesn't really care about any of it, it that's what's so depressing about the movie is that for all of its careful craft and and just fantastic shooting strategy it 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 doesn't give a shit about Uh, the material that's too bad and then it it becomes a pure plot vehicle and i mean at this point the plot is not new to anyone (laughs) i mean actually i was gonna say I've never read the book or seen the old movies, and that was one of the reasons I hated the trailer because I had no idea. Like from the from the trailer, I I guess them I thought the movie was like about a punk rock girl like solving <laughs> Gosford Park. Like, I, like well, I, that's not an inaccurate description of the plot. Yeah. But um, the the thing is, and maybe this is just maybe all of my criticisms against this new version of Dragon Tattoo, maybe the Swedish version as well, is completely my fault in that I look at this stuff with David Fincher behind it when I look at Zodiac, when I look at The Social Network, when I look at um, Fight Club, uh, and I see a filmmaker that can put very interesting subtext into very sort of surface-level stories, and I kind of demand that. And the fact that Fincher just treats this like a comic book superhero pulp movie, which admittedly is Panic Room. Yeah, um, yeah it's a genre. You know, yeah. uh, I just I just consider that to be profoundly disappointing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's particularly after how much he did with you know sort of fame and obsession and all these elements that he injected into Zodiac. Uh, um, yeah, to do another procedural where now all the procedural details are completely and utterly irrelevant to anything. That's a shame. By the time they reveal, you know, who the villain is, well, A, it's obvious in the casting. I won't say any more than that. But um, B, it's obvious because most people have probably encountered, I would say, the material. 
what yeah. is it is it fair to say that maybe best selling 50 yeah. to 60 percent of the sure. audience that go into this movie have either seen the swedish films or probably more likely read the english translation of the swedish novels um so that element is gone and then i'm, I'm asked well what's left okay what's left is to watch you know, Lisbeth Salander, who's an interesting character to put up on screen, even though she's not very far removed from a comic book superhero. Like, it's just ridiculously <laughs> unrealistic everything that she does. And is, um, is Fincher nothing going... Nothing has any consequence. Is Fincher going to be doing the other parts as well? No, I, I don't think so. I believe he is, and I, I find that ridiculous. It's, it's exactly <laughs> the same way that I'm kind of miffed that Sam Raimi wasted the oddies doing Spider-Man movies when I would rather fuck I would take a drag me to hell over any of the Spider-Man movies I, I, I much prefer him in that mode and 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 I mean that that's kind of in that Ocean's 12 yeah, kind of playful I, mode um, I, <laughs> where he's experimenting and yada 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 I feel like Sam Raimi was meant to make a Spider-Man movie at one point one. I don't think he should have done a trilogy I don't think but it, I feel I like dark it, I feel like dark man is a comic book movie and dark that was like, that was like a template for a Spider-Man movie for him and yeah I, dark man is friggin fantastic dark man has more well Minor pleasures in it for me than yeah. any of the Spider-Man. Films. I think, I think, I think Spider-Man, Spider-Man Two mo- is awesome. I think yeah. the Spider-Man movies are just one of the reasons I can't get into them. Is just all of the emotions are so arch. Uh, you know, like that's yeah. We brought a, that up before. Yeah, yeah. in a way that <laughs> you, you know it fits the material, but still, it's it's not something I can be invested in. And I can't so for, much I, time I can't dedicated for one to movie's it. worth. I think just but to no, see think, Sam. Think Ray. about think about Raimi's a simple plan. Right and 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 think if he like I don't I don't demand like Evil Dead movies like he's you know mm-hmm, that, and mm-hmm. which is essentially what Drag Me to Hell is Evil Dead Four with a girl, right. uh, but sure. I I I would prefer to see him doing more. It's exactly the same way I feel about Peter Jackson. I'd rather I mean I, I'm no huge fan of the Lovely Bones, but I'd rather see him try these things than go back to the Token Universe for another two films. Um, I, I get I. It's a very deep disappointment that the last 10 years seems to be every sort of major big budget capable director adopts a massive franchise and that becomes their job for a decade. I sure Ooh, as hell hope yeah. that that David Fincher doesn't spend that long making he works pretty fast. And and I mean in Christopher Nolan I I do very much like his his take on on the Batman, and but, and I like the fact that he can squeeze out far better films yeah. in between the Batman. You know, sure. It's not that's, like that's, that's one of the good all things. His job is you don't get the feeling that Christopher Nolan is giving up more interesting movies in order to do the Batman because he also did the Prestige and Inception. You yeah, know? they're enabling them. And, yeah, and, uh, uh, and and yet he still manages to do interesting things with the Batman movies, where Sam Raimi felt by the time the third Spider-Man came around, like hamstrung yeah. by Marvel's wants and desires um, uh, yeah I, I think i think a lot of those franchises are just better left to people like gore verbinski who are just above average but don't necessarily you know and, and they can they can make a nice movie and they can do a nice sequence but they don't necessarily well, <laughs> have a art, giant you know big artistic vision well it's funny <laughs> because if, if if you had said gore verbinski at pirates of the caribbean one i would have agreed with you but after seeing rango i i'm i'm kind of convinced that um Verbinski's 
pretty capable. I mean, The Weatherman is, is another extremely underrated Verbinski I, I movie. Really, no, I've, it's I've, really good. I really like Gore Verbinski, and I don't mean that as an insult. I'm just saying, like... Uh, you need I, to see Rango, by the way. I'm before. just saying, Gore yeah. Verbinski is not such an idiosyncratic director that working within a studio system is going to hamper him in a way that I feel that you know doing the yeah. Spider-Man movies doesn't necessarily play to all of Raimi's strengths because there's only there's a limit to how silly he can make them, uh, which is why I think <laughs> you know Darkman feels more like a Raimi movie than the Spider-Man. You know, absolutely, uh, I can buy that. Of course, you know, and that's the way it, it sounds cool with the girl with the dragon tattoo as well. Yeah, is, it just yeah. sounds like. Fincher could be better, you know, serve doing something else. I mean, that being said, um, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, the Fincher version, is better than Benjamin Button. Yeah, sure. A film that I'm not a fan of at all. It just feels like when I saw the Swedish version of the girl with the dragon tattoo, and I knew nothing. I knew I knew nothing about the novels. I didn't even know the novels exist. I just knew that someone. Uh, it was Jandy Stone on row three saw the film really early at AFI and wrote a very positive review. I, you know, the image is striking of Elizabeth Sander and and, and uh, Salander, and I was keen to see the film. And I did see the film, and I'm like, wow, that's someone who has a major hard on for David Fincher movies and not <laughs> doing it particularly well. And then yeah. you get the news that David Fincher is going to adapt this stuff, and I'm like. You know, I'm not saying Stieg Larsson is is a huge fan of David Fincher, but I'm saying that the the the, the Swedish director who made the first film, I I never watched the sequels because I was nowhere near a fan of the first Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. Um, so then David Fincher decides to what um, make a big budget remake of a bad imitator of his work. I, I I just that's that's too many mirrors within mirrors, but. I'm kind of beholden, like Christopher Nolan, David Fincher, Terrence Malick. There's certain directors that you feel obligated to see their films on the big screen every time they come out. Definitely. Um, even if you even if you don't agree with the direction Absolutely. that they've taken, you're like, okay, fine, show me something. I, I maybe I want to be proved wrong that you actually see something in the Dragon Tattoo that is more interesting than most people see and you're going to give me something that takes me out of my comfort zone and shows me that I don't want what I want. I want what you're going to give me. And well, Dragon Tattoo is not that movie. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still looking forward to it because I am a Fincher fan. Um, I mean, I think I'm looking forward to it for very simplistic reasons like, oh, it looks cool. Um, I like mysteries and I, 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 I have seen the original so I kind of know what to expect. Um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm I'm a fan of uh, the score already. So I, you I know mean, what? There's I, things I about kinda, it. I kind of hope that uh, I can't wait for the movie to come out. Just because the sooner it comes out, the sooner people will stop talking about the score. <laughs> I really like Trent Reznor's scores. Uh, maybe it's just my own like sort of Facebook feed and all my sort of film friends. But they're just like, oh, David Fit. Like when Social Network came out, it felt like it was like two solid months of talking about Trent Reznor's completely capable but not special score maybe it's because well, it's a score we can all make in our rooms and our on our simple keyboards. i mean and... I'm, not, I'm not a trend i'm not a nine inch nails fan so maybe it's just my own but it's just i feel like the all, score I'm... of this film is incredibly obtrusive um and i don't recall the social network score being as 
I mean, it's it's unusual, but it's not as in your face right. in this. But it, it's funny that the more impactful element uh, is the how Fincher uses or exaggerates sound design of objects as score. Like there's a mm. whole sequence with Lisbeth Salander and her government handler who who is abusing her basically and while they're in his office there's someone outside the office with like one of those wax <coughs> floor buffers and hmm. the the foley of that for the whole scene is just cranked to 11 so there's a very much of a this is where i get into the whole fincher is just being experimental with how he does something the opening credit sequence in this film always good. is well, yeah, David Fincher is. You, you look across his filmography; all of his opening credit sequences are just top shelf. They actually, every time he releases a film, it almost redefines what other filmmakers do with their opening credits. In this movie, the opening credits is like, well, in my review, I said it, it would be like a James Bond opening credit scene as conceived by H.P. Lovecraft and bathed <laughs> in crude oil. Like it, it is, it is almost worth the price of admission and then of course it's the the Karen O uh, version of the immigrant song is 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 the opening credits but it, it's funny because Daniel Craig is the is the lead in the film and 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 the, the the opening credit sequence feels like yes this is the one where bond goes to hell <laughs> <laughs> awesome. speaking of going to hell um, we should talk about we need to talk about Kevin uh-huh. Which is a film that I know you're a huge fan of, Kurt. It, I believe it's probably going to be on your top ten of the year, yeah, which top is three. and which whoo and which is uh, you know a, a big reason why I wanted to make sure I, I saw it. Um, and I, I I there were a lot of things I really liked about it, especially the first I'd say forty five minutes or Absolutely. so. Absolutely, and uh, you know I like I I I was really impressed with this director's use of color and um, how vivid it was and using weird food imagery to sort of foreshadow blood and things like that. Uh, there are things I really responded to and, and, and it's sort of like... The, the motif of splattering objects and, yeah. the, and the opening dream sequence is, is mm-hmm. incredible in that it's... <sighs> yeah, yeah the opening dream sequence is great because it's very evocative but it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same yeah. time. And I think Tilda Swinton is great. I think she makes the most of her character. Yeah. Um, but once we finally get to seeing her interact with Kevin, um, there was a certain d- disconnect for me because I didn't – I just didn't really – I felt like I was in another movie in terms of how Kevin is portrayed as this demon child and this – this force of evil and that's pretty much it i mean that's all you're seeing this interaction and i just didn't think it complemented uh what tilda swinton was going through and there were certain instances where i was genuinely surprised by her lack of response to something that kevin was doing um and then we get to kevin as a uh you know a teen and i i just that actor i don't know i i i, I he turned into a caricature for me it was and that's it's, and that's I, where it became you know instead of a great movie like I, I was feeling it I was feeling it for a good long while it's sort of uh, it, it it just sort of uh, devolved for me. 
Well, after Kevin the actor feels like he should be in a Greg Araki movie. Right. That's probably exactly was, well, the problem. I was, I was gonna I was gonna I was gonna say he reminded me there's a school shooting character in American Horror Story. And hmm. uh but American Horror Story feels like a Greg Araki kind of a show. Oh god. But I, I really do feel that the portrayal of Kevin as this evil genius is the worst possible choice they could have made. Because in it's about because the first, as as long as Kevin isn't a character, um, as long as Kevin is just sort of an off-screen force that we see glimpses of, but we don't know as an actual character, mm-hmm. it's great. The movie's fantastic. Um, it's it's jarring and it's riveting and it's upsetting, but and and it ha- goes back and forth through time, but it does it. But just by the simple length of Tilda Swinton's hair, you're able to tell when everything is. Right, it's right. not. It's never confusing, and that's the. War- I mean, that's you have to be a really great filmmaker to do that. But like, instead of having any kind of ambiguity about, well, is it nature versus nurture? It it presents two disparate elements. Uh, it goes, yes, he is an evil genius, and he had a bad mother, and and like. Well, it- see, I actually I can connect the two for you. Um, I look at this movie as like the ultimate expression of um like mother's buyer's remorse <laughs> like i i think the whole movie is designed to be warped from her perspective i don't think that hmm. what you're getting is an objective reality of events you're getting her completely, perception that that's why the, the 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 sound and everything is amped up and everything is so ultra stylized it's like somehow she got coerced or into having a child and this is like the 15 year postpartum depression writ large on screen as an object of horror cinema that that's that's my take on the movie and i think that it it rationalizes that complaint that you have right there because the idea is that um it's not that um she is a bad mother she's a just an unengaged, incredibly frustrated. I don't even want to be here today, mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that um, I don't know if her son is, um, you know, as one sided as he is in the movie. But from her point of view, her emotional reality that is what her son is, evil incarnate. The, the, it's the 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 representation of of. Everything that she does not want in life. But I think even when I, – I mean I, that's definitely something I was considering just because it was so over the top. But um, – and again, I think this – even that in theory could work. But the character of Kevin just seems so laughable. It doesn't seem like a horror movie. It seems like a joke. Uh, if, if the performer was better, maybe if there was a way to make him seem like an evil genius without seeming like he's belongs in a completely different movie, mm-hmm. like, but there, but even when looking back at it as a memory, it just it's not scary. It's just it it just seems silly, which again disconnects you from the first forty five minutes when you're right in her where where you right are in her emotional life, and then. Uh, as soon as you meet Kevin, you're out of it because it breaks the reality that you were given. 
I don't. Well, isn't it supposed to be an act of frustration, as if Tilda Swinton can see this, but the rest of the world can't? Like the ultimate act of. Yeah, there are certain you know, moments for sure. Like you know, the father will come home. Plays. Yeah, ex- exactly. And he'll be you know completely nice kid again. <laughs> Um, which I don't know. It's like you know he the the the, uh, the father John C. Riley's character thinks that oh you need help clearly and your 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 perspective of things is completely warped. So I can sort of buy into that um, perspective on the film. It's it's just like for me personally, I was pretty I had some anxiety for the first forty five minutes realizing okay you know what you know we're we're pretty much gonna experience what she's experiencing and. Uh, at a certain point, I did feel like, yeah, you know, the, the, this character of Kevin is, he doesn't belong, at least how he's portrayed. I just, I wasn't terrified by him. And so, like, even the emotional payoff at the end didn't work for me. I mean, even, like, it's building up, obviously, to something tragic. And I was expecting to have a much more intense response, and I didn't have that. And even when, you know, towards the end... You know, I wouldn't give it away, but there's certainly, a, a, I guess, a tender moment if if you want to leave it at that towards the end, and it just I don't know, it didn't feel uh, very organic for me. When you that's... watch something like uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, are you scared? No, not necessarily. Because I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely, at, I'm definitely unnerved. I'm, I'm creeped dis- out, unnerved and disturbed, which Creep, I was not out. by this by this film. I definitely, because I, I look at. We need to talk about Kevin in the same way that The hmm. Brood or, or in particular Videodrome. That he, Cronenberg takes some anxiety, a very powerful anxiety, and exaggerates it so far beyond any realistic scenario and then plays it out on screen. And and I, I mean... But I, I, but I feel like... I mean, again, maybe this just, but I feel like it's so disconnected from the first forty-five minutes and the fact that the first forty-five minutes are a hundred percent more compelling than this, uh, you know, than this absurd kind of scenario where she's an evil genius and stuff. That by giving us that first part where it feels like a, you know, where it's not something sort of melodramatic and large, it feels something. It feels a lot more intense and real. Yeah. Then by the time you get to the part with Kevin, it's it feels like a, not only a betrayal before, but it feels like oh, this isn't the movie I want to be watching. You if, mean not, Kevin the teenager, not Kevin I, the. As soon as yeah. Kevin began to speak, as when he was a baby, um, with saying expletives, I, I thought those scenes play out almost some as some of the best in the film when he's an, an, an like infant toddler and yeah. she's mm-hmm. clearly trying with the ball to to make some contact. I yeah. mean, there's even a scene where she's like just walking you know around and he just won't stop crying and she she i think she walks by like a jackhammer and just yeah, waits yeah. No, that, I, it's more that's, pleasant than the at child that, at, at that I point that for and sure. no at that point i was still really into the movie and i loved it yeah. because the idea like colic is the is the term for babies who just never stop crying and it doesn't matter whether they're hungry or not hungry or tired or not tired or they have a wet diaper or not they just always cry it's an actual but the idea that she like that perfectly summed up this sort of frustration and sort of and the ambiguity I thought was going to happen where you don't know if it's nature or nurture you don't know if the baby there's something like inherently wrong with the baby or you think that she's just a bad parent who doesn't know how to deal with something that actually happens but 
Uh, again, and in contrast he... to that, you have the you know like a scene with Kevin masturbating and that look on his face. It's just. I found that to be more comedic than scary. Especially comedic is the, like, evil computer virus he hides in his room. Like, did he make that? Or he he said, oh, I collect them? Like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, <laughs> like it's just, it's so weird. It's, like, it's so absurd. And I get what you're saying, but I don't, I don't think that the movie... I think a movie teaches you how to watch it, and I think the first 45 minutes prepare you for a different kind of movie. Um, And a movie that I think is more interesting Mm -hmm. than what eventually happens. Uh, Again, maybe if there was... But I think it's just... Well, if you step back a minute, if you step back a minute and and look at the bigger picture of the movie, um, one of the huge elements of the movie, it also plays out in a much lesser Canadian film that came out with Maria Bello and and Michael Sheen called Beautiful Boy, uh, which they're both the same subject matter. It Hmm. focuses on the parent of a... Uh, school shooter, uh, and in in we need to talk about Kevin. Um, I think where the movie really does work is when it puts Tilda Swinton in the contemporary story, where she has she's not left the community, and there's this like massive level of judgment. Whereas yeah. the 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 characters in Beautiful Boy kind of. Avoid it and 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 just figure out a way around it and and cry that it's happening. Uh, I mean, Swinton like embraces it as like an like is just something else she has to endure as part of this process. And I I really liked that. Yes. I really liked the way that played out. And she's like, I don't fucking care how much <laughs> people punch me in the face or throw shit at my house or anything. I am. Um, you know, I have made my bed whether I wanted to make it this way or not. I have these choices are mine. You know, Star Trek Five. I need my pain. Goes <laughs> <laughs> through it, and, and I like that. I, I thought that 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 was I, only Tilda Swinton can she's, play these whoa, horrendous she's mothers. Like she she has like a, a side career in playing internal horrible. Like, I don't know if you've seen Julia, which came out a couple years ago. Yeah. Where she's it's a very similar character, and you just watch it, and you're like. Wow, there is no ego involved here. She is just playing a horrible human mm-hmm. being, and and she seems to relish in that, and she certainly excels in it. Um, She's very good. I, I don't yeah. think this is a bad movie. I think I don't either. I just think I just think the portrayal of Kevin torpedoes everything I do like about it, in that I can't I can't separate the two. But I mean, and I will definitely see it again. Probably not before the our list, but I'm I I, I definitely had. A really good response to it. I think I just expected it to be, you know, like, oh my god, I'm gonna be blown away. But I guess, yeah, if I, if I, if going back, knowing where it's going to go, yeah, that's what I wondered too. Because I did hear some people saw these at horror film festivals, right? Which is again not at all the direction I thought that was was going with the first forty five minutes. It might all gel better for me because I like you because everything you uh, brought up about you know Tilda Swinton's performance and. All the, and the contemporary, you know, timeline—it's all fantastic. Um, and the way, the way she resolutely comparing this to Dragon Tattoo and Drive and Contagion and Hannah—it's it's an it's a really compelling argument for the art of craft in a movie this year. Like there, there've just been a a real collection of movies that whether you like the direction, the plot, or the characters went as an artifact of high craft in filmmaking Absolutely. we need to talk about yeah. Kevin is one of the best 
crafted films. You you mentioned earlier uh, at the beginning with the 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 tomato sauce, and there's constantly like the tomato sauce, and then mm-hmm. the 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 super soaker with the paint, and then eventually blood, and and how that imagery is it's heightened to like this sure. feverish pitch. Like it's not just like her stomping like tomatoes or whatever in, in, in Italy. Um, it, it, it's even like her in the supermarket in front of a whole wall of tomato sauce. Like now she went from this freedom orgiastic, you know, bohemian thing to everything is canned. <laughs> and then eventually the cans explode into, into the blood. Like it's, it's a very meticulous, very, I mean, people may not like that. People might want their movies a little faster and looser, but uh, I love the fact that you know every inch of the composition was poured over in this movie, and yet it doesn't break the movie. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And I definitely recommend her uh, last film with Samantha Morton. She gives yeah, a really Morton great Kalar, yeah. fantastic. Also, you should both watch Morton Kalar and this movie have just flat out awesome soundtracks. Yeah, like the just the music. Uh, I mean, even when she's score, using, too. even when she's using like. Almost like cliche overused songs, like um, the Buddy Holly is it the song? Buddy Holly song or whatever. Yeah. She finds somehow she finds a new way. She doesn't just use it ironically. It, the, the intensity of yep. driving through Halloween, where every single kid is <laughs> running in front of her car—that's fucking incredible. Yeah, yeah I love yeah. that moment for sure. Let's talk about a surprise for you. Oh yeah, um, I recently saw the Adjustment Bureau, which I've been sort of catching up on movies that. Sounded interesting that I just never got around to for 2011, and it just might be my second favorite Philip Day Kick, Day Kick, Philip K. K. Dick, Dick. even uh, <laughs> um, after yeah, what adaptation? To- Scanner Darkly is probably my favorite. What about Total Recall? Blade Runner. Oh. Blade Runner. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess Scanner maybe Darkly is exceptional. Yeah. I, I I really like Scanner Darkly, uh, mm-hmm. even though I don't understand. Like at, at a certain kinda, at a certain point, I, I stop I following the plot. Uh, I think which, I understand it, but uh, um, no uh, yeah. adjustment bureau is weird, especially for a Philip K. Dick adaptation because it's the warmest, mm-hmm. uh, most sweet, and even uh, Christian themed uh, <laughs> uh, Philip K. Dick adaptation you could possibly imagine. And uh, you know, it's a it's about. I thought it was going to be sort of a sci fi thriller about you know Matt Damon fighting fate or whatever, but it's really just. It almost feels like you know, uh, you know how like Annie Hall has moments where you know they're just they feel like short films on their own. You know, like when they're talking on the deck and the two subtitle, two different kinds of subtitles are going on. Like that feels like a segment from Louis. That doesn't, you know, <laughs> um, like the date that they go on and the uh, and when the two guys are talking. Well, if they kiss at this, you know, he might touch her hand. If he might, and if he touches her hand, then it's all over. Like it felt like a Woody Allen kind of a thing for me, where or it's, Charlie Kaufman. Uh, well, no, I, I, well, I was thinking more like just the idea that it's it's taking something, you know, it's taking real observations about romance and stuff like that, and then it's putting them in a different context. I, I think yeah. some of the segments and uh, everything you ever want to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask, or si- like are similar, mm-hmm. but um, like that whole first date. Where they're just talking, like they're just giving a running commentary on what's happening, and you know, if he if if she smiles at this point, then it's all over because, like, that's so insightful and so true and so charming and funny. Yeah, uh, I mean, Matt Damon is a movie star, and I've I've said before, like on the 
you know, when we're talking about the Oceans movies. I like when movie stars are charming movie stars. Uh, oh, you definitely. They both are. And uh, I remember that's, that what, that's If there is a strong thing to latch on in the Adjustment Bureau is that the actors have legitimately real chemistry. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, and and it, it happens actually quite rarely these days. So that's almost enough to yeah. carry this movie and forgive well uh, the last could argue act the many, last act any flaws yeah <laughs> the last the whole last act is the problem because at what it what i like about the movie is at any point you could see all of the adjustment stuff as just a metaphor for what's going on in matt damon's head as far as trepidation about the relationship um at like okay, the yeah. same yeah. story could be playing out without any adjustment bureau mm-hmm. um happening the idea that well, I'm a, I want to be a senator and this person, like, I don't have time for a relationship and I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, all of the all of the things that are, quote unquote, not supposed to happen could be just things that he's worried about. The sort of yeah. initial apprehensions about Kind of like an episode of Herman's Head from the, the, from the old... I, yeah? yeah. Well, I know Herman's Head. Hell yeah. With half the Simpsons cast. I watched that and uh, Get a Life back to back when they were first on the air. No, but no, and 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 I thought the whole movie was going to be like that, where you could yeah. view all of the adjustment stuff as just a metaphor for what was going on in his head, and not. Mm-hmm. But then he actually starts engaging them and starts like they start. Well, getting, then it turns into Monsters Inc. Right? Then yeah, <laughs> it, exactly. Then he starts talking about loopholes, and they get into like the process of the adjustment bureau, and they get into like the rules of the, and it's like, oh, this is not the right approach to do because this isn't what made this movie so great and interesting and stunning stunningly original um one thing i loved the use of hats oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah just anyone wearing a hat could be that's that's funny and i but it is it's a very warm and they have a great chemistry and it's fun to watch like it's honestly the kind of movie i would have expected vanilla sky to be because it's sort of a sci-fi thriller but it's super warm and about you know like you would think if Cameron Crowe did a sci-fi thriller, it would be Vanilla, you know, it would be but this. Just, yeah, okay, yeah. But, because, yeah. but, I mean, Vanilla... Vanilla Sky is a mess, but I still love it. No, <laughs> I, I like, we talked about Vanilla Sky yeah. in the first episode, actually, and I, I actually went back for the first time I listened to the podcast, and I listened to the first episode. Uh, so, yeah, I remember talking about that, but there's so much about Adjustment Bureau that I really love, and if they were able to make it so the whole, like I said, the whole thing was, could be viewed as a metaphor, um... And they never they didn't actually engage the thriller aspect. It would easily be in my top five of the year um, because I love movies like that. Uh, and well, no, go ahead. I'm convinced that the Adjustment Bureau is possibly the most Philip K. Dickian movie. Uh, it's certainly not the best adaptation of Dick, but it's possibly possibly the most Dickian representation on screen for the simple fact that it's a horribly cynical unhappy ending uh like even though it it, the problem is in order to make it unhappy you you kind of have to do a little work like Mm -hmm. it it, when you when you come out it looks like this really basic crowd-pleasing ending Uh oh my god we've trumped we've trumped god's plan and free will is back on the table and 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 whatever and and you know and 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 we want to just make our make our own life but then when you realize the whole fact that they met was because of a rough draft of something that was fucked up in the first place the fact that they actually owe their 
quote unquote happiness to the totalitarian super god regime in the first place is is kind of you know uh, it puts a little yeah, bit of bitterness yeah, yeah, yeah. back into the uh, back into the equation and and the and the fact <laughs> is you know I, I don't believe that the ending is happy all it does is underscore that their happiness is an act of absolute arbitrariness which is of course incredibly ironic considering it's supposed to be some 50 page super magic book plan um and yet it, it, it's just like a like a failed arbitrary draft of that plan i, I so in a way I, again i admit i'm rationalizing right. more like none of this is actually on screen well no it didn't but, it didn't it incur i i thought it was funny that it encourages sort of a christian reading it's like sometimes we are called angels and there's very clearly a uh you know, uh, it's not it's not a totalitarian. It's not a government. It's it it feels more like a divine kind of agency. But if you read it like that, basically, God's a fuck up, uh, and angels are just <laughs> yeah. bu- bureaucratic dicks. Like, <laughs> like well, it, it's the old it's the age old like disproof of God, right? Like, yeah. can God create a, a, a rock that he couldn't lift? And and uh, if he can create it, then you know whatever. And if he can't lift it, then well, whatever. Either yeah. way, um, and this is kind of that on uh-huh. on screen. Well, we just turned into the philosophy of religion class. This is awesome. A little bit, but uh, no, I mean- that's what the, that's what the adjustment bureau kind of it wants to wrap all that stuff into a into a crowd pleaser. But I must admit, like when you when you're the actual chemistry of the actors outsells the quote-unquote didactism of the of the thing then well you know i don't know in the end i i think that unless you are willing to actually do some work with this movie which it may or may not deserve the film is just kind of a mushy middle for me it but it does prompt those questions it's kind of a an interesting jumping off point for conversations that may or may not be directly connected to yeah. the movie. Uh, you're like making you said, me want to rewatch start, it. <laughs> you, you can start your your, you know, intro to philosophy and religion class. Um Sure. Yeah. No, I but I again if it if it stuck if it really did stick to that sort of Charlie Kaufman, Woody Allen uh sort of feel of about, about it where it's less interested in the rules than in ha- what it has to say about relationships and stuff, uh, then yeah. it would have been my favorite of the year. Cause it's if it just... hadn't gone to, like, gotta stop the wedding sort of trope. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I mean, to be fair, it is the most spectacular stop the wedding. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, I know it is. It like, definitely is. I mean, it, it was That's the wrong of, direction to go. Again, but... that sort of reminded me of a Charlie Kaufman moment where it's like, you know, they were going through his subconscious and being John Malkovich. Yeah. But this is done in a much spectacular way. <laughs> A more of a blockbuster uh, language, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, it's it's a very good film. Right hey, now, I, I give I give it full credit. It actually trumps the entire movie of the Ides of March with Matt Damon's "This tie, these shoes were picked by consultant" <laughs> speech, which to me actually felt ten times That's more right. authentic because that was so good. Yeah. Not only not only is it used as he loses, it's used. To reassert the faith in him, so that he can go back to being a slime bag politician. So right. it actually, again, it has that Dickian. You think it's a good thing, but is it really? Yeah, and yeah. that is like even you know as good as Emily Blunt in as much chemistry. Have that little speech 
is excellent and a great sort of mirror of our times. And it's funny that the whole George Clooney movie, uh, The Ides of March, strains to get at that. And it doesn't do what, what this movie does in That's one That's the movie I felt like was a minutes. complete wasted opportunity. Oh, huge around. wasted opportunity. Yeah. I agree. All right, we're gonna probably move mosey right along, and it's it's gonna get ugly. the The gloves are gonna uh, come off. It'll get a little. The claws ugly. are coming out. Yeah, the claws Patrick are coming out. Patrick has a giant bag of feces. He's ready uh-huh. to throw at me. I have a large sock full of horse manure. Yeah, it's gonna be great. So get ready, everybody, because we're gonna talk about the director of the episode, Hal, Hal Hartley. And unique, digging the hell hardly. Hal Hartley makes very weird films, a bit like Goudard and Vin Vendors. Kind of like Jarmouche, only with robotic speech and angsty freaks and geeks. Intellectual diatribes Philosophical deep thoughts about life His movies aren't for everybody But they struck a chord with me He can be pretentious I think he's inventor I dig the hell hardly So happy Hartley was born in Lindenhurst in southern Long Island, New York, the son of an iron worker. Hartley had an early interest in painting and attended the Massachusetts College of Art in Boston, where he studied art and then developed an avid interest in filmmaking. In 1980, he was was accepted to the filmmaking program at the State University of New York at Purchase in New York where he met a core group of technicians and actors who would go on to work with him on his feature films. His first feature film, The Unbelievable Truth, came out in 1988. The screenplay featured what would probably become Hartley's trademarks over time. Deadpan humor, offbeat, stilted, pause-filled dialogue, characters posing philosophical questions about the meaning of life, Combined with a very highly stylized approach to filmmaking, and this film in particular, his debut, received positive reviews and was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the 1990 Sundance Film Festival, which established Hartley as a distinctive new talent in the burgeoning independent filmmaking movement. Family's like a gun. You point it in the wrong direction, you're going to kill somebody. Do you miss your kids? Sure. Do you hate your husband? Absolutely. Would you ever get married again? Of course. A family's got to stick together come hell or high water. Carry this with me at all times. Hand grenade? Just in case. Are you emotionally disturbed? 
Maria, if you come home right now, Mom is going to stab you in the heart with a steak knife, okay? Did you eat anything today? No. Sit down. I'll fix you something. Tell me what you said. You heard what I said. Tell me what you said, coward. Come on. Your husband died of a heart attack. No one dies of a heart attack. They die of disgust. You're not the first woman in the world who's had a hard time. I think it's kind of warm for this time of year, don't you think? Damage to the ozone. What is that? Where the hell you been the last ten years? Married. I like him the way he is. How is he? It was busted anyway. Dangerous. But sincere. Sincerely dangerous. See this pin? Pull that. Wait eight seconds and... Do you know what the word empirical means? Don't ask him. He thinks TV gives you cancer. Uh, I, I, I would say it's like 93, 94 where I got very interested in the independent film movement as a whole. Like, I sought out guys... Uh, you know, like Linkletter and Kevin Smith, and I was interested in the filmmakers that made them want to be filmmakers. And uh, one of the uh, names mentioned between Linkletter and Kevin Smith was Hal Hartley. So I, I went to the local video store, rented uh, both The Unbelievable Truth and Trust. And I, th- I sort of adjusted by that point in time to the lo-fi indie approach and became kind of... Uh, it, interested in the way he approached his characters. I, they, 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 they spoke and interacted in a very mammoth-like way, especially if I compare it to something like Oleana. Oleana, to me, when those characters are speaking in very robotic, rhythmic, stilted uh, interactions, there's not a lot of uh, humanity in that movie, and I found that approach to be really stylistically just an interesting choice. He sort of strips the artifice and and uh, inverts like his perception of how people interact, and I like that. Um, some of some of Hartley's influences are, are mainly Godard, a uh, filmmaker that I, I've liked. Wouldn't say love because I haven't seen a, a good number of his films, but a few here and there. And another fil- favorite filmmaker of his is one of uh, one of mine, uh, Vin Vendors, who Paris, Texas, is clearly a huge influence on, on Hartley in the way. Uh, the characters are very sort of uh, minimal in their emotional expression. And I like, I love it when people philosophize. So that's something that I enjoy hearing from these characters. And sometimes it's, you know, kind of pretentious, but uh, other times it has this sort of directness that doesn't always fit in with the real world. But I, I find it endlessly interesting to, to, to watch and listen to. And I especially respond to the sort of droll and deadpan sense of humor that it plays throughout. There, there's certainly a lot of moments in, in the movie, the first movie we're going to talk about, uh, trust that, uh, I don't know, that there's a lot of interactions between um, the mother and uh, Matthew, I think, are really interesting. Uh, but I, I don't know, there's especially... Uh, Especially trust. I, I, I feel I feel a lot of empathy for, for kind of these damaged characters. Um, and the final movements, the final minutes of this movie I find really, really moving. And I don't know, this is... Trust it has a special place in my heart because I saw it at, at a very uh, impressionable time when I was younger, really getting into the art of cinema, and I thought this was really a unique approach that's definitely not everybody's cup of tea. But for me, I, I find it completely original and interesting. And it's mainly because, like, his approach is very off-putting at times. 
Um, but I think it's it serves a purpose, you know, for his style, and um, it's a very minimalist, ab- abstract, alienated mode um, that doesn't rely on empathy and it sort of like utilizes tropes of repetition and uh explores how like people have these moments of miscommunication and problems you know becoming self-assured and i respond to that even if the way the characters you know convey their feelings is is definitely kind of in a mechanical nature but um i i just think that in some interesting way, he's carved out this very specific niche, and I've always responded to it. Definitely more with his earlier films, uh, pretty much all the ones in the 90s I, I really enjoy, and then once the new decade rolled around, I started to tune out quite a bit. Um, so maybe his style wore out its welcome for me, but it made such an impression with a film like Trust that uh, we'll talk about more. And now we're going to hear from my good friend, Patrick Rapol as he talks about his uh, opinion. Um, yeah, first time I heard about Hal Hartley was because on your top ten favorite movies, I don't know if it was At your, one point. At one point, it was your number one favorite film, Trust? Yeah. Okay, at and some, not, at now it's The time. Apartment, but yes. at one, some point in time, Trust Which was Which I'm sure you're relieved about. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't have a ton of investment in your top ten, but... Neither list, do I. But... <laughs> But uh, so uh, you actually, uh, you know, you found a copy online, you, you burned it for me so I could watch it and got zero out of it. I thought, okay, well, uh, this is obviously working on some level that I just don't comprehend. So I, I hate this movie, but whatever, I'll get back to it. I put a pin, I put a pin in Hal Hartley at that point uh, with the intention of maybe trying to figure out what that guy's all about uh, later on. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say the the nice things I have to say about Hal Hartley now, um, get them out of the way. Uh, I think I have tremendous respect for anyone who has a very specific vision and is committed to it and is able to, you know, find some level of success, you know, at least enough to keep working. And Hal Hartley has an extremely specific vision that he didn't, you know, does not really compromise, at least in any of the films I've seen. Uh, and you know, he's found, you know, he, He's a critical favorite, even if he's never found great, you know, commercial success in any of his films. They're not the kind of films that cost a lot of money to make. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's able to continue working. He does what he wants. He does short films a lot, which I respond to because I like filmmakers who, you know, make choices not based on career decisions, but you know, uh, I and I love. I haven't seen any of his short films, but I do love short films, and I wish more. And I think a lot of movies that I don't like are because they make good short films, but there's no market for them, so directors feel the need to stretch them out to feature length. So I respect that tremendously. Um, I think taste is entirely subjective, uh, and as much as we like to, you know, debate me- the merits and stuff, it, it, you know, it comes down to taste, and I, I do not begrudge anyone for liking Hal Hartley's movies. Um, okay, so now the nice things I have to say about them. Uh, there's there's that, and then there's uh, I love when title sequences smash cut to the titles and the uh, and the like opening credits. Uh, I love smash cuts to you know white text on black background. I love smash cuts back and forth between you know the actual film and then just sort of black text. I love maybe it's just you know growing up such a big Woody Allen fan. I love you know just 
very simple white text on you know black background and stuff. So all of his title sequences uh, are exactly the kind of title sequences I like in movies. So that is the one thing nice thing I have to say about his movies. Um, other than that, pretty much the one thing that sinks every movie I've ever seen is the performances. He has a very specific idea of what he likes, and which is in which characters are completely sort of robotic and inhuman feeling. Uh, you know, we were talking a little bit about the Uncanny Valley as it pertained to Tintin. I think the Uncanny Valley I have more trouble with if, with Hal Hartley's movies because uh, I am a hundred percent unable to relate to any character as a human being, um, which is an approach that works for some movies. You know, Dogville, it's a very allegorical movie. So the fact that people don't act, you know, like 100% realistic is fine. You know, something like 2001 A Space Odyssey is so clearly more involved with the ideas than it is with, you know, uh, the relationships between the astronauts and stuff like that, that that all the performances are kind of wooden, doesn't hurt the movie at all. In fact, it helps it because it, you know, it helps you keep you on task keeps you on track of what is actually important which is the ideas being explored but Hal Hartley's movies are about human relationships and about people uh, and the characters and for me this is the absolute worst approach you can use for a movie like that um I've heard many discussions and I've read many things about the interesting sort of relationships that go on and the different sort of truths he finds and I'm not saying that those aren't interesting, and I'm not saying that he doesn't find truths, but the fact that they happen to people who are basically, they look like, you know, they, they just sort of appear like animatronics, uh, like Disney attractions to the me. The country bears. Yeah, they're like, they're, they, they might as well be like the Chuck E. Cheese band, just for how much I relate to them as human beings. It It's all for nothing, and when you combine that with the fact that not only do I not find his movies funny, I don't. I often am completely unable to detect what's supposed to be funny about them. Uh, like uh, I would say, Henry Fool is actually the one movie where, uh, which we'll talk about later, is where I was able to detect. Oh, that's a joke, and that's actually kind of funny. Um, there were moments that I liked, but like Trust, there's nothing in it that I could even, I could even figure out. Like what what is what in this would even be a joke? Um, like it's just completely antithetical to everything that I you know that's in my taste and so watching his movies in which I'm not engaged to any of the characters in which all of the characters are sort of cliched because they're takeoffs on you know cliched sort of plots or every single character is oh girl the parents don't understand her and then oh there's a guy and he doesn't fit in the world because he wants too much and like it's 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 literally torture for me to sit through these movies. Um, I'm sorry. Because, oh, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, well, I can't be too, like, I don't have an intense hatred. I hate his movies, but it's so easy to avoid Hal Hartley. <laughs> like like I said before, like I said before, uh, we're going to be done with this podcast. I'll probably never watch another Hal Hartley movie as long as I live, and that'll be the end of it. You know, it's not like his movies keep popping up on everyone's top ten list and I have to argue them with everyone. People, you know, generally... You know, nowadays don't talk that much about him. So, uh, I this was an extremely unpleasant sort of des- you know vacation to take in the world of Hal Hartley. Um, it's everything I hate about you know movies that I hate, uh, and um, 
now you can go home and watch some Robert Altman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <To get laughs> the, I, that was actually, out of your mouth. I realized that Robert Altman was my favorite director because everything that I was missing in Hal Harley movies are like things that are in Robert Altman, like like warmth and humanity and uh, you I know respect that entirely. stuff like that. So um, yeah, I cool. Fucking despise Hal Hartley movies uh, with all of my soul. Kurt. Well, first off, Patrick, you should go back and dig up your what was it eight rules of how to make a Hal Hartley movie that yeah. you angrily posted on Facebook because I think there's truth in those. I I I, I think that Hal Hartley movies in general yeah you said taste they're like cilantro nothing quite tastes like it and some people like that and some people don't and uh you know it's just one of those things like i actually really like the little worlds they all seem to be set in long island um Mm -hmm. but the little world that he's built with all of the same characters even if they're actors rather even if they're playing different characters and and the types that he likes in his movies and how each movie he it it's kind of the same but he looks at it in a slightly different way very very similar if you look at the path of Wes Anderson's characters across the years I mean he's still Wes Anderson's still essentially making the same film but I don't begrudge him that because each interesting slant that he puts on it makes it new enough for uh-huh. me to say oh now this is the way he sees it and now he's looking at it from this way even if it is always the same you know story with uh, um, you know little boys behaving that way refusing to grow up and etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but my going back a little bit my first experience as I said at the top of the show with Hal Hartley it was like a lot of my late 80s early 90s um, I wasn't really hugely into movies in the way that the internet and people are into movies nowadays we found everything randomly back then by just going into a video store and like i didn't read film magazines i never knew anything about anything i found everything randomly and um so finding a copy of trust on vhs it was probably just released because it would have been about 92 um, and sitting down and watching it and just really, really digging that movie. I think there's a a certain angsty romanticism that comes across in those movies that whether or not you feel like the characters are realistic or robotic or uh, you know, actually could function or, or have any humanity, there is something about Hal Hartley treating his characters as these kind of man-children, but then super romanticizing it is exactly what Wes Anderson does in his films and uh, for that matter Whit Stillman and to a degree Kevin Smith uh, I mean there's just uh, it's funny that, that that he seems to have been just on the bleeding edge of, of that by a couple years but um, every one of the actors in these films I, I just love watching and, and it's funny because none of the actors certainly they're in other films um, but None of the actors in his films ever sort of hit the big time. I mean, the the closest you could say would perhaps be um, Parker Posey. Or maybe but, Edie Falco. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I guess, but Edie Falco was it was in the, the, the more of the television 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the only other movie I can think of Edie Falco outside of Hal Hartley is like Medicine Man. But it um, was the television show that – Yes. So I, th- I think enough. that counts for a lot. But yeah, no. A show I've never I, seen an episode of. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the dark on that one. Yeah. But um, – I mean, and I've certainly seen Martin Donovan all over the place, and the the the, the foreign girl that's in his that's in a lot of his films. I don't recall her name. I mean, I've seen her in a ton of uh, in a ton of other films in small uh, parts. But the fact that these actors all feel like they're like superstars in his universe um, is kind of amazing. And and when you watch a so I I don't think I'd seen anything but trust until you said, hey. Why don't you come on the how like like you're assuming that I have this <laughs> knowledge of, of of this stuff like I've seen Trust and I saw it, it was very similar to Jim at a very impressionable age and it was a very unusual film at the time and I'm like yeah but I never actually pursued Hal Hartley because I didn't even know to do so at that particular moment in time so um, it was interesting now to come back uh, having gone through the entire indie boom of the 1990s and and see five of his films in a very short period of time and realizing that um yeah this guy clearly knows what he wants to do in movies and i think he's exceptionally good at what he does and like someone said earlier i think with uh we need to talk about kevin about a movie teaching you how to watch it I, I, there's no Hal Hartley movie that violates the Hal Hartley principle Absolutely. at any point within the movie. So they are, within that movie rule sense, self-contained in that here's what is promised by the filmmaker and here's what is delivered. Um, uh, and if you really respond to that style, you'll 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 generally like the majority of his films. No, they're it's they're especially I mean especially uh, I watched Unbelievable Truth is his debut film and like it's pretty much it's remarkably self-assured for how unique and weird it is. You know, I like I think all the performances are bad, but it's very clear, you know, even even the first time I saw Trust, it was very clear that they were meant to be that way as opposed to like I think something like Kevin Smith like yeah, I don't know when the last time you went back and watched Clerks, but the performances are really awkward and bad. Whereas particularly this... the girlfriend that brings in the lasagna, the um, oh yeah, the girlfriend that he's supposed to end up with. She's that. There's an opening scene in Clerks where she has the fire extinguisher and kicks out the gum. It's really painfully bad. Oh yeah, act. and it's it's brutal. And that I definitely never get the idea that that is the case with a Hal Hartley movie that he's going for something else. Um, I just again, just my distaste for that approach makes me wonder why he's why he is doing this. <laughs> but uh, like um, something I'd like to ask you guys about, you know, uh, his movies are all very similar, but you can talk about just in terms of trust. What do you think is gained by having such by having performances so mannered and so flat, um, and and having like every character. Uh, hmm. With very few exceptions, uh, I would say that the dad in an unbelievable truth is not like he is. He's a different kind of comically one note, but and uh, I would say we'll talk more about Henry Fool. But the title character in that was one of the first title, like first times in any Hal Hartley movie I saw a character that I'm like, oh, this is actually going to be like a, someone I can relate to. And it, there were mm-hmm. flashes of that, but then it also was mannered at times uh, but what what is added to the movies 
Uh, as someone who actually does enjoy this approach, what's added to the movies by flattening everything like that? I feel like, well, um, in particular, I don't know, and this sort of might be a cop-out, but I feel like the um, because Hal Hartley is, um, is interested, I think, in emotional stiltedness or, 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 or people being emotionally stunted and not or, like reaching a point where they're stagnant, I think. Maybe that's just the, the, the approach you know, mirrors the characters and, and in that way. And it's, and it's, I wouldn't say it's consistently engaging, but there are like, he finds a lot of humanity in how they, you know, they interact. I think like, I feel, I, I genuinely get the impression that they're, that, that these two characters as, you know, messed up as they are, they're desperately seeking some sort of connection and they have moments where they, I really feel that it's there. Um, but this, this, I, I just feel like that this approach overall, like whether you call it just this sort of, you know, deadpan or, you know, however you want to call it, just quirky, dead. quirky, um, quirky, or I don't know, whatever, like that, that's the thing I, I remember going back to earlier this year with uh, the movie beginners or submarine, like there was this onslaught of people dismissing even just based on the trailers, just saying like, oh, it's too quirky or twee or hipster. Uh-huh. And I'm like, those are all like, I watch these things and those are all things that I, I really respond to. And if I can, you know, articulate exactly why, I'm not sure. They just sort of hit me in a, in a, in a way that because it's unique, because it's original, I respond to that in a movie. Maybe, it's not, maybe it's not the best approach. Maybe it's not the most, maybe it's not the best way to engage your audience by like, being so fully wrapped up in your style that you know what I'm 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 so immersed in my oh, no, linguistic I, approach. I respect that he is not at all pandering or selling out his unique vision. I do respect that. I hate it, but I respect <laughs> it. Um, what you what were you saying, Kurt? Well, oh, I said Bellflower would be a a really Ooh, recent yeah. example of well, <laughs> the same sort of highly mannerized, uh, but. Uh, it's funny going all the way back to the one character that Patrick said felt like a human being, which was the frizzy-haired dad uh, in, in the, the in the unbelievable in, truth. In the unbelievable truth, who tries to rape Adrian Shelley in the sequel. So there, that's taken care of. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't say human being, but he, he didn't say human being, but he felt one note in a. He felt like he had one different note. Uh, mm-hmm. I felt everyone else's everyone else's sort of flat and subdued line readings, and he would do the line reading, and that was actually the one time I laughed at unbelievable truth. Is what are you talking about? I don't even know how you got here. <laughs> <laughs> that made me laugh. That did make me laugh, and I was kind of. I, I think there's a really sense of, like, I think there's a real sense of witty dialogue. They're not like laugh out loud, but it, right. there's a certain type of laughter that just makes you feel a little warmer like I, I find a lot of christopher guest's films like i don't laugh out loud at them but i i would say that they're really funny they just it's a different type of laughter and i think the very simple answer to patrick's question of why does he choose this approach to tell that the very simple answer is that because i believe Hal hartley thinks that's funny and i think that's funny and and that works i mean I, 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 maybe it's a cop out to say, "Well, laughter is subjective, and I can't explain why a joke is funny. I can only tell you that I think it's funny." But 
that is the fact that these characters take themselves very seriously when the filmmaker doesn't is an interesting contradiction yeah. and and it, and it's it's something that i think i mean you would think that hal hartley's films would play just as good as stage plays as they would films even though he does have a good sense of like i i, I can't remember what the guy, mick spiller i think is the cinematographer for like mm-hmm. all of his films or whatever he he they, they, Unlike, say, a Kevin Smith or whatever, yeah. his camera is very sophisticated. It's it's always moving. He has a very large palette of lenses. Like there's there's nothing. Someone earlier said uh, like a sort of that slapdash indie style. I, I I don't think there's anything slapdash about his films at all. They're they're highly controlled. Um, and 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 like I I was quite amazed when watching it of thinking, okay, this is late '80s, early '90s indie movies. Um, the camera work is quite sophisticated in them. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, the uh, one thing I can say is maybe it's a, a, another personal bias, but I love it when characters talk fast. I mean, it's just like a dumb sort of surface thing, but that, like, like maybe that's the reason why I got sucked into Gilmore Girls for seven seasons. The way they, the way they, they have a lot, they interact with a lot more emotion, obviously, on that show. Um, but and I'm not comparing it to something like the Howard Hawks, you know, uh, his girl Friday, right? Uh, you know, dialogue delivery. There's a, there's a manic energy behind. That, yeah, there's that a manic energy. energy, but I the way the characters speak, I mean, the, you talk about for me laugh out loud moments. I don't know, like the the scene. I think it's in the abortion clinic where he's in the waiting room. Martin Donovan's in the waiting room, and he's just like you know randomly saying, "I just want to, I just want to." Break something, you know, just uh-huh. like, just like I don't know, some, the way it is deadpan, but the way he he sort of delivers it, I I, I find it funny. Um, yeah, I didn't even identify that. In as a fact, joke. all of all of um, Hal Hartley's films have at least one scene where two characters absurdly push each other around. Some, <laughs> I, I think it's, um, oh geez, which one is it? Um, it might be unbelievable truth. I think. Well, the, it, well the or, or, or no, uh, uh, yeah, unbelievable truth. I think has the highest number of them. Mm-hmm. But um, almost every time, uh, is it Ken Corrigan? The guy That's that sounds Henry just Fool. like Alan Arkin. Yeah, in Henry Fool. Yeah, almost Kevin every Corrigan. time Kevin Corrigan is on screen, there's like this absurd pushing match and, and 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 it's in every one of his films has at least like that's a, a common image that he and, and they're not they don't feel like real fights they, they they feel really silly and they're funny um I, uh, you earlier you said that you they, they it seems like these movies could work just as well as stage plays um i felt that way too and this might be another one of my sort of biases against it but I don't know how many acting classes you guys have been in or how many local or community theaters. And like you were saying, there is something charming about the way that there's a contained universe and then he has the same uh, you know, Definitely. sort of stable of actors. And that it does add to the let's put on a show element. But his flat style is identical to just bad acting. And it isn't because these are people who have done good acting and they're – it's not like he just accidentally cast people who are bad actors in every one of his movies to deliver every one of the, you know, the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's clearly a purposeful choice, but it literally is identical to me, 
as just bad. Like I don't know how. Again, I don't well, have any acting class community theater or something. I think that's the ironic remove that Hartley is aiming for because I agree a lot of these do feel like Sundance workshop like a lot of the way he structures the scenes there's not a lot of stuff in his movies that don't like he just cuts all the other stuff out it's almost exactly like just two characters having a scene all the time that's like there's not a lot of like guy walking or we have to get from point i love the fact um again this is in simple men but it's representative of almost all of hartley's films it's funny we're not even really talking about trust well yeah no but in in simple men uh the uh uh one of the two brothers um bill sage is the actor uh is trying to find uh an address based on a phone number so eventually he, he narrows it down to the district and he gets a phone book and he's looking through it. And th- he's doing this as he's having a scene with Martin Donovan, uh, who's the star of Trust, but it, who is, who's one of the mechanics in this film. And they're having a scene where they're talking about, like, a woman. And Martin Donovan's not even looking at the phone book. He's not even looking. He's just kind of just flipping pages as if to say, I, I don't give a fuck. I'm, I'm just I'm telling you something else on the pretense of helping you but at the end of the scene he walks over and just points and goes here it is <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's as if to say we're gonna get there anyway so let's just cut through the the usual connective glue of of, of movie making and we'll just and that is very off-putting because hollywood movies in particular it's all about the connective tissue if you don't connect things then the movie just seems like cheap or amateur but yeah i love the fact that hartley delights in the fact that things just happen randomly often in his movies like you're going along and this is the way the movie is and then someone will have an epileptic fit yeah and, and it sort of reminds me of uh when patrick and i went to the music box to see a godard movie i think it was vivre zevi i don't know how to pronounce mm-hmm. it um but we had a completely different reaction to that too, well, and that movie has random bits of what the fuck. Is, I don't, I know. don't like Godard either, but I'm not, I'm not as nearly as familiar. Uh, I don't think Godard's no. movies are as all similar as no, that's as definitely how hard these movies are. So yeah. I, yeah. I don't feel as comfortable dismissing Godard, especially I don't, mm-hmm. I don't dislike his movies as much as I hate it's like. But I have the same problem with Godard, where it just it, it feels too intellectual, um, and to me you know humor comes from connecting to things and humanity and and if when there's that total disconnect i can't and i can't relate to things then uh, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of humor for me um well back to altman yeah i mean the player is almost completely outside of vincent d'onofrio's character is almost completely void of humanity i mean uh tim robbins in that is just a complete cipher and everything is Ironic, ironic, and bleak, and and dark, and I, I and yet it works. It's friggin' hilarious. I, I I will say that's the one. That's the that's sort of the probably the biggest Altman movie I have not seen. So uh, uh, surprising. I, I picked it. I am. Surprised. Yeah, but anyway, that that's funny because uh, you know almost everything that you are praising Altman on does not exist in that film, and oh, yeah. I find that film to be possibly his funniest film. That's um, true. Yeah. I, I mean, there's. I I don't mind things that go in bizarre directions and happen for no reason. I'd say, you know, if we, uh, I, I don't want to turn this into Altman v. Hartley because that doesn't seem to be on point with anything. But 
like something <laughs> like Brewster McCloud, I love, but be, but because I just feel the underlying sort of rebellious, uh, you know, emotion behind it, and uh, there's something very, you know, you can tell that he's getting such a kick, uh, that Robert Altman's getting such a kick out of the bizarre. Have you have uh, have either of you seen Brewster McCloud? Nope. No. Okay. Well, there's bizarre like interstitial things where it's like a teacher teaching a class about birds, which the teacher's never seen in any part of the movie. It's just, and it it doesn't really directly apply to anything. And he's a horrible teacher, and no one's listening to him. And it's it doesn't really have to do with anything to do with anything. But it, it doesn't feel like an intellectual exercise. It feels like Robert Altman's having. I mean, that movie. Um, they uh, it opens in the Astrodome with the marching band playing the national anthem as the credits roll, and then the conductor stops everything. The credits stop, and then she starts it again, and the credits roll again. Like it's so, it seems like someone having fun, whereas this and maybe it's again just because of the approach the actors take. It doesn't feel fun to me. This hmm. uh, and I mean clearly, you know, this is several people's. You know, this is a lot of people's idea of humor, and this is Hal Hartley. I do agree that. This is probably what Hal Hartley thinks is funny, but like that's just sort of the big disconnect for me uh, that I cannot get past uh, in any of his movies. Well, and it's funny because they they all have the basic same structure. It's like uh, girl in trouble meets you know sort of violent, mysterious man. They drink a lot of beer. Um, they they. <laughs> fight with their parents and he has to leave yeah. <laughs> and leaves the woman standing on the side of the road um, wondering whether it was a good thing or a bad thing that he has to leave but undeniably they're in love and their love will only be greater by their separation uh, it's that level of sort of juvenile Romanticism uh, that I like in his movies, and I, I mean, but admittedly, is, it, is he is he making? My question is: Is he making fun of juvenile romanticism, or does he really feel that way? Like, I, I think this is the best part. Both. I, I think that's the best part. It's the same way someone like Edgar Wright makes a hot fuzz. These movies are. It's so easy to make fun of big budget American inner city action movies but at the same time he can make a loving tribute to the same movies at the same that, time that I think that's great thing that is beautiful sort of beautifully uh uh captured i think in a very strange moment in henry fool uh involving uh taking a shit um because i, f- I feel like he Hal Hartley is probably not a fan of the uh, you know uh, the, the scatological dumb and dumber humor that was you know that the Fairley brothers were big at the time, so he wanted to sort of invert that and offer this weird contrast where you know something disgusting is going on, but at the same time it's a very romantic moment, and he likes that sort of dichotomy, especially in that. And moment. it's a perfect and it's a perfect metaphor for their whole relationship. Like that that's <laughs> the that's actually. Uh, one of the like three or four sort of like, Henry Fool's a really long movie. Um, Too long. <laughs> it's one of the uh, like linchpin scenes in in that movie where he where he's almost being almost too on point with his yeah. with his metaphors. Actually, I find uh, oftentimes uh, his metaphors are you know they're blunt like in trust with the grenade or they're sure. 
almost non sequiturs. Uh, I, I which I always find funny as Patrick which I, knows. Which, which I which I which I love. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, well, the one other thing I want to say with Hal Hartley in general is that he he was making exactly what Jim said earlier about the drowning in quirk, which is what these films are derided. I mean, Wes Anderson gets yeah. lumped in, Submarine gets lumped into that as well. Um, but he never, ever once, ever has a manic pixie dream girl in his movies. Like, <laughs> it was like, I don't know whether, obviously it wasn't a conscious thing that 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 term wasn't even coined by what, Nathan Raven, Raven until, believe, yeah. until like, I don't know, 2007 or something. But it's funny that um, it's never the girl fixing the guy. It's the, again, the, the romantic notion that two broken people for a time will fix each other in some small way. And, and that's actually earnest within his movies that's yeah, the I totally only get that earnest in thing in his movies trust has it huge i mean with that um i don't know whether the the fall backwards into your arms which is a big scene in trust if that existed as a as a disgusting corporate tool before the movie and he just incorporated it in or whether it, it or, or whether somehow it filtered some consultant happened to see trust and filtered it into some stupid business uh, team building uh, exercise but again in 2011 watching trust it has an extra layer of irony so um, um, I here's another question I want to have because speaking of movies that came out this year that are very derided for being ultra quirky um, something what you're saying where he is simultaneously mocking and relating. Uh, you gonna say restless? I'm gonna say uh, no. I'm gonna. I actually wanted uh, to see that. The, yeah. the future. I've never seen the future. I love. I that was a movie. Yeah, I saw the trailer for it. I was, I was genuinely like, surprised. I, I but I saw the trailer for it and I hated it. Right. Um. But that is a move. And I. I mean, I hated the trailer. I saw the movie because. Because just because it was get the sheer amount of praise it was getting, I decided to give it a chance, and it's one of my favorites. And it is very similar on paper to how Hartley movie, and that it's you know it's mannered and it's very quirky and weird, and it's both mocking, uh, you know, it's both mocking its subjects and it feels intensely for them. Uh, so I guess I'm what you. I, it's too bad you haven't seen this, Kurt. What do you think the key difference, Jim, is between Ooh. something like the future and trust? Because I want to, I want to really get to the nugget of why. <laughs> Damn, what is it in a Hal Hartley movie? Wow, I wish I could uh, immediately come up with. Because yeah. I know, I mean, that's 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 not an excellent point. I I thought because what I thought the future was going to be was going to be uh, was going to be like, oh, look how funny and quirky these people are, and they don't know what to do with their life, and blah blah. But like. The people in the movie are very pathetic, and mm-hmm. it makes no attempt to make them seem not pathetic. Um, but at the same Whereas time, it's Hell not, Hartley sort of romanticizes it's his not, characters. No, no, it uh, maybe there isn't that level. I think there's a love, there's an intense level of empathy in something like the future, but there's definitely no romanticizing. Yeah, I, I think, mean, I think honestly, it just uh, still may just come down to the fact that all every all I can see when I watch a Hell Hartley movie is bad acting. Uh, it's identical to all the bad acting I've seen the, my entire rest of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, is it is it because the future is post Harmony Corinne <laughs> and Hal Hartley, or at least his all of his good films are pre Harmony Corinne? Because Harmony Corinne hmm. all, always had that 
that sense of um, these people are weird, but they're grotesquely weird. Uh, and and no no apologies no romanticizing just I have I still haven't flat seen out. actually I still haven't seen Gummo and uh, I guess Trash Humpers is another one what, what's that's the- that's that would be a good filmmaker to do soon because he's someone that I've completely I've felt a disconnect with way back especially when I saw Kids Did, yeah, was that Kids, kids? I thought that was, no no Kids is Larry, uh, Larry Clark. Clark oh he just wrote I it. think he might yeah I think he oh, might have wrote it. Yeah. okay. And 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 but uh, Mr. Lonely uh, again as this. Oh, that's if you right. just I haven't seen the Mr. Lonely. For Mr. Lonely, it's, I hate it. I it's like this Mr. quirk Lonely. for the sake of quirk, but it's not so pretty. <laughs> I no, I I definitely don't like. I didn't like Mr. Lonely, but it isn't. Yeah, it isn't cute. And Crash <laughs> <laughs> Humpers, of course, goes like the full. That that's pretty much. I don't know. Like I, I said this after Gaspar Noé made Enter the Void, he might as well just shoot himself. He's, there's nowhere to go, and and I think that Corinne with Trash Humpers at that it's the logical endpoint to his filmmaking. There's no. I'm curious about that one for sure. I want to see that. I know Cheel's a big fan of Harmony Corinne, so um, here's a funny. Uh, if I can digress for oh, like yeah. thirty seconds at TIFF every year, we have all of our sort of little posse meet at a bar on Monday night in the middle of TIFF and just, you know, dr- just drink for four hours and, n- and not book any movies and just drink for four hours and shoot the shit about what they've seen, what they've coming up, whatever. It's just, you know, there's usually about 20 or 25 of us and we're at the pub and the waitress uh, said, oh yeah, I, I went to like, just, you know, whatever, make him waitress banter. Said, oh, I went, friends of mine had an extra TIFF ticket and I, I don't watch too many movies and blah, blah, blah. And, and the, the movie that her friend took her out of the blue trash humpers and, and i said to her i said you know you are a blessed and rare and privileged individual because most people that would see trash humpers would have some clue as to what they're getting into you were the person that went and saw psycho with no concept of who alfred hitchcock was what that movie was about like it, it's it's rare to go into such a an off-the-wall, unique little movie knowing truly nothing and just actually getting the full experience. Not not to go into another digression, I, think I always thought that was the chief flaw in Michael Haneke's uh, funny games is that he claims, oh, if you know, if you didn't yes. need to see this movie, you would walk out. But pretty much everyone who would see funny games is a film person who <laughs> wants to see what, he, what things he's subverting. They're not enjoying yeah. the, you know... Well, it, 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 I think his actual argument, which I believe is Michael Haneke's only sense of humor, uh, <laughs> is that anyone who walks out of funny games is still a human being. <laughs> and anyone who stays to watch it is reprehensible. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, that's, so what does that say about Haneke. the guy who made it? <laughs> which, <laughs> so that, that I think is the idea of a Haneke knee slapper. Yeah. Uh, I, which he repeated quite often in the media around the certainly around the american like the, the I think the, I think the american version I think his sort of thesis works better than because uh just because like that movie because of just the actors were in it got sent to Redbox you know like mm-hmm. the idea is you have to for that thesis to work you have to not know what you're getting into and you have to not know that he is subverting things cuz I went in and I was like, oh, this is reprehensible. But what I want to do is I want to see how he's achieving it, you know? Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like I stay in the theater, but it's not because I'm not a human being. It's well, because the I'm... argument, The argument for the remake of Funny Games is that the original was not properly 
imported into the United States right. as a mainstream mm-hmm. movie. And I, I mean, that's a thin argument, but the the idea is that this movie was solely made at an American audience and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I, I don't know because they never really released very wide. I mean, the idea was, oh, well, Cachet was a fairly big art house hit and it gave him enough credibility to get a movie cart blanche made in the united like distributed in the united states and but even then they didn't really distribute it so yeah, but they did but they did market <laughs> it as the hostile movie anyway yeah uh, no, i mean like i i don't know i was thinking for a minute just like i mean i think the future kind of goes not necessarily into a science fiction element but there's something that no there's that, definitely a fantasy element of the yeah, future that is not pre- but and i don't want to give it away but it's more of like president uh, hal hartley movies there's never a right there's never that element in, in Hartley's Yeah, films. and I don't know. I mean, I, I I feel like what you were saying about about the future is that there's you know there's there's empathy for them at the same time. There's you know the 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 filmmaker is you know super aware of how pathetic they can be. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Hal Hartley feels that same way about but his characters. But isn't making your characters too pathetic almost like an easy crutch? Yeah, like, I, I think I think Hartley doesn't quite make his characters that pathetic like they're, no. they're, they're certainly the characters may be in bad situations and they may not be the most worldly or the smartest necessarily but they're not incompetent they're mostly and, narcissists you know i mean that's a lot of them yeah, well, but most of the hal hartley movies is this movie is right. the point that breaks them out of their narcissism that's mm. almost his end result of all of his uh movies uh is that somehow this incident will make these people better people but you never see that element because it's after the end credits so and then he goes back to the next one and resets his characters back to these sort of you know mouthpieces or exactly know what they want even though it's totally the you know an impulse driven wrong thing um no, um, uh, but, I'm, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just curious. So, um, I know you 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 feel that the acting is poor. Do you But do you do you find uh, Adrian Shelley to be likable and I, that completely def- endearing? Never factors into it for me because I don't consider her to be human. Like it, oh. really, <laughs> it really does just feel like at every point in the mo- in every one of his movies, every character is a mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't think she embodies sort of naive naivete and no, selfishness? No, she exactly embodies naivete and, and, and selfishness. She, and she embodies those things yeah. instead of being a human being. So again, <laughs> I don't have feelings for her um, beyond what she adds to the, the plot, but I don't care about the plot because every single person in the movie... Like, I would rather have a... Like, I feel like it is... <laughs> if you, I don't know. I'd rather have a discussion with Hal Hartley than watch a movie because he's just so clearly trying to tell talk at you as opposed to well again I think that's done in ironic humor humorous sense like, I hate that. He, he's he's kind of taking himself seriously but he's he's undercutting himself which is feels, same feels, time which feels cowardly to me like why don't you make a movie that is genuine without so many levels of detachment <laughs> and irony like what kind of I, mean, I think that's what, again, that's what he finds interesting. The 1990s, that's the decade of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's, Fight it's, Club it's, was the logical endpoint yeah. of that decade of that. <laughs> yeah, that totally I mean, makes that, sense. But that's everything I hate about 
that era of film. Uh, is I hate all of that. I don't so, relate. So to you all like that. that scene with uh, Marissa Tomei and Mickey Rourke in the in the uh, Rustler, where 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 they both go? The nineties sucked. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, what's funny is. Uh, I always I always think it's funny that whenever I watch shows like uh, The State or shows from early MTV, like uh, like early 90s MTV, I always like, man, I wish I was in high school around then, <laughs> you know? Because we I, was, I was born, at, yeah, I was born in 1987. So by the time I came of age, uh, irony was dead, sort of. Not dead, but you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't so in fashion. And I just, you know, I don't, I don't like it just for its own sake, and I don't. I and that's how I feel about his movies. And I feel that you have to have some kind of. And and you guys are saying that he does, but it's just so buried. Like his genuine emotion for these characters is so buried, and it it makes it feel for me. And, and it's but like, I've got my shovel, you know, and I'm always yeah, digging. yeah, yeah. No, but <laughs> but no, it makes it. And, and again, I can't say cowardly exactly because he's not the kind of person who he is not the kind of person who changed his movies for success. He's not the kind of yeah, person yeah, who yeah. pandered like <laughs> I, he like yep. he made choices that a coward like if you look at his career, that's not a coward's career. Right. A coward's career would be you know he would direct one of those you know he would direct Go maybe or one of those post Pulp Fiction you know Tarantino ripoffs uh, and it'd have a little bit of sort of the style that. You know, trust or something had, but he also wanted a career. He doesn't have that at all. So I can't call him a coward, but these are just the feelings I have when I watch his movies. It's just, come on, just I, I feel fucking like have one genuine emotion. I feel like, in a way, this could sort of summarize, you know, how how we see how we see, uh, you know, uh, Hal Hartley's movies is that there's this hilarious scene in uh, L.A. Story where Steve Martin and and a group of people uh, go to go to an art museum. And it, you know, the, he's sort of satirizing the pretentiousness of people who look at paintings and go, "I see this, I see this yeah. beautiful woman, and I see breasts, yeah, yeah. and I see this, and I see that." And you know, the the camera goes into a long shot, and all it is is this red blank painting, <laughs> and it's you know, it's hilarious how like you know he's he's either trying to show off or he genuinely sees these things in this painting, and there are people who just see a, a red blank canvas yes. or whatever you know and, and that's I totally fine acknowledge that. And i have no problem like if someone told me oh i love hal hartley movies i wouldn't get mad at them i would i get mostly i get mad at myself because no, i'm even not. when i don't like things like i'm not the biggest fan of david lynch but i have no problem seeing what people see in his movies uh you know and he's clearly but there's like i there's such a disconnect for me from hal hartley movies that it's frustrating you know yeah um uh, I want to get back to Adrian Shelley for a minute because yeah. first off, going back to these films, uh, now that Adrian Shelley was like crazily strangled to death in this completely random incident in 2007, mm. watching Trust and The Unbelievable Truth back to back was an emotional experience just because I'm like, damn, she's good. Like she is really good in those movies. She's She's, I don't know. There's something about she has a screen presence that even transcends. Like, I mean, it, it's complimentary to Hal Hartley, what, what Hal Hartley's doing with her in the films. But she just has this 
otherly like she's the only like Hollywood actress with gigantic lips that it doesn't feel collagen. It feels like authentic. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm making my point very well, but no, she just has this alien look about her. But it's an authentic alien look. It's not a pose. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, a. Yeah. It, she is just so good. Like those sequences where she's going into the abortion. Uh, clinic and and she's kind of conflicted and she she waffles a little bit. I I don't know. That feels really. It it does. I I have huge empathy to both of her characters in those two films. I completely and agree. The whole bit with the um, like she blows off the other boyfriend. She adopts Martin Donovan, um, and then the other boyfriend comes back. Uh, when he doesn't get his football scholarship or whatever, and and just to say, like, she just looks him like pretty much square in the face and said, you know what, I've actually grown so much in the past three months that you are so far beneath me. And I'm not saying that Martin Donovan's character is a prize by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination, but it does goes to show you that these characters do not completely exist in a vacuum, and that they do grow, and that even. Martin Donovan's like the, the the big proclamation of love, and I will change, and I will get a job, and I will compromise my my angry principles, and blah blah blah, in order to to do the family, which of course he's incapable of doing. Um, but even when he leaves at the end, or he's dragged away by the cops, um, you feel that at the very least um, she's grown, and the movie is about her. It's not about. Martin Donovan, even though he's kind of a force of nature in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, the movie's about her, and you actually feel like there's a legitimate arc. Now, does it feel like a real person? But this isn't real. This is the movies. The movies can tell non-real stories to get at some sort of you know lies that tell the truth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I believe that in a, in a roundabout way, particularly with Trust, more than any of his other films, Definitely. Trust for me is the it was. It's, funny because it was the random one that i that i hit but now having watched them all like a a good chunk of them i I think that he nailed it the best um in trust even if even if he has to resort to the thing that was hugely endearing and memorable to me when i first watched trust was the fact that he carries a grenade around in in this movie it just feels like a wow he's carrying a huge metaphor around um (laughs) uh, you know i mean it's clunky uh but um but uh you know to the whatever the 14, 15, 16-year-old me, that was like a big deal that he carried a grenade around. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and, and I get all those elements. It's the same with, um, well, it's Adrian Shelley again in, in, in The Unbelievable Truth and, and, and Robert uh, Burke, um, Robocop 3. Um, you know, playing the same character. Uh, like it, It's the same story. I just believe that, um, you know, trust gets it just a little bit better yeah no I, to- I totally agree with that and i don't know maybe it is partially i mean this is again you know not necessarily a cop-out but maybe there is you know a-, a personal nostalgia bias if you will when watching trust because yeah i mean i saw it at a time when i wasn't very analytical about film and filmmaking i just there was a you know like i just thought it was cool or i just thought you know wow that this is really sort of capturing teen angst with these adult characters in some weird yep. otherworldly way at the time fuck I saw John it. John Hughes. Like seriously. <laughs> Thank fuck you. John Hughes. Like, okay, fuck now him. I'm back fuck on. Oh my god. I would Patrick just lit up like a Christmas tree. Rather rather watch Hal Hart like Hal Hartley's universe 
of characters, and and you know maybe Adrian Shelley is the Molly Ringwald of of, of <laughs> Hal Hartley, but she's ten times better. And uh, I mean, yeah, I, I just have you seen uh, even though you... there's that huge sense of irony layered into his movies, it it does transcend it. It 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 it, it does for me um, in unexpected ways. Yep. I echo all that completely. Um, have you seen her um, film Waitress? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I feel Waitress. like if if you're not a she's fan- clearly a, a Hal Hartley. Like I mean, I've never seen her. Uh, what's the one with uh, the Manhattan one? Oh, like, I love that. It's supposed, to be, it's supposed <sighs> to be like uh, what's it so called? funny After Hours. It's it's it's, yeah, it's like supposed to be like her After Hours, right? But she's so clearly in- influenced. Yeah. Like she. She came of acting age with Hal Hartley, and she makes Hal Hartley movies. <laughs> and Waitress is like this amazingly like feminist or female version of a, of a, of a Hal Hartley movie, softened around the edges because it's age. I I, with, I really am so disappointed yeah. that she was killed because I would love to see. <laughs> We're all disappointed. <laughs> 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 fucking selfish. But I would love to see her grow as a filmmaker. <laughs> I totally agree, though. I mean, it's like, wait. Oh, that was such <laughs> a strange sentence. I know. Yes. <laughs> we had that last time too. I know. Uh, I just, yeah, the time sorry. before. Um, before somebody said the, uh, I forgot about. It was about nine eleven. Remember yeah. that? That was funny. Um, <laughs> no, nine uh, eleven was funny. Yes. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Waitress, um, have you seen that, Patrick? I have not. I think that would be you would like that movie very mm-hmm. much because if, for people, if you watch a Hal Hartley movie and you don't like it or don't respond to it, give Waitress a try. You have really great characters and awesome, like you got Nathan Fillion, Carrie Russell, who I love, and Adrian Shelley and uh, Larry David's wife. Cheryl, Cheryl Hines. Cheryl Hines. Uh, what's the, her name? Sisto? Yeah. Uh, and Jeremy the little, Sisto? Right. Jeremy Sisto. I mean, the the thing about that movie is the ensemble, but also the, the writing, it's it's a little bit more close to home. It's a little less uh, ironic and, and, and well, absurd. But she has that archness with the pies. Yeah. No, the, there's definitely like that The touch. little asides with the this is the pie for that. Like yeah. it, it has that same – yeah, it, it's pretty clear that – you know, you couldn't quite take how hardly that out is of her. A, that is one of my. Well, I don't know. It might that I'm one of my favorite romantic comedies. I think. I, I don't know. It's like I've only seen it three times, but every time I love it more, and I think people only should check three it out. times. I need to check it more and watch it more. <laughs> um, but let's move on to the second. And Shelley's film. great in it, by the yeah, way. Yeah, because I'm the fact that she's a supporting character in that. Right, definitely. Um, I'm interested because there is a movie, uh, a Hal Hartley movie that Patrick did not give a, a grade of an F yes. to that we're going to move on to next. <laughs> I so it. I can't wait to hear that. Henry Fool, a D minus. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you come from? Nowhere in particular. Get up off your knees. I go where I will and I do what I can. That's why I'm in trouble. An honest man is always in trouble, Simon. How do you know my name? What are these? My confession. What have you done? I've been bad. Repeatedly. It's kind of like an exile. Marginalized on account of his ideas. Are you drunk? Henry, your parole officer came by again today. If you don't call him, they're going to put you back in jail. Come on, let's go break their arms. Do you ever think that Henry is dangerous? He needs help. 
Here, take this. You ever feel like you got something to say and you can't get it out? Stop and write it down, okay? In my opinion, this is pretty powerful stuff. Am I really a poet? Of course you are. But you need to do something to be ashamed of, for crying out loud. This place is crawling with chicks, Simon. Wander around, leer a little, cop a field. How dare you put something like this up? It's pornography. The product of a diseased mind. Yeah! There's a particularly wound up young garbage man out there who seems to have written a poem. And why do you think I should read this? Because it's a masterpiece. Really? Yes. Are you hearing this? He's adorable. I wouldn't want to waste your time. Where'd you get this? All over the internet. It all started right here in Queens, Jim, at the World of Donuts, when local garbage man Simon Grimm began to compose poetry. Have we debased our culture to such an extent? Your poem will make more money than any book of poetry ever published. God, Simon, you're like a total rock star. You'd be nowhere without me, and you know it. That man's a bad influence. The man is a scoundrel. He's a fraud. He's going to be the next president of the United States of America. He dreaming more and the guy's a Nazi. Why do they torment me like this? Who is this person? Do I know him? His name is Henry Poole. So after his experimental 80-minute film in 1995, Flirt, Hartley went on to greater acclaim and wider distribution with his epic feature, Henry Fool. It was the winner of the Best Screenplay Award at the Cannes Film Festival, and it's kind of a lot about a mishmash of certain themes and ideas, including undeveloped ambitions, artistic expression, the effect that expressing yourself can have on others, and sort of the need for um, unconditional friendship and how it can um, you know, inspire a person. At one desperate moment in time, the alienated simpleton Simon meets up with the recently paroled Henry Fool, the title character, and uh, Simon clearly needs to connect in some way, uh, but like Henry sort of materializes out of nowhere and has this weird effect on everyone involved in Simon's family, including uh, a very depressed mother who's almost comatose, and like the promiscuous sister, played by the great Indie Queen Parker Posey. And Henry sort of teaches Simon how to express himself openly and find his voice through poetry. And there's a lot of things that come with that, including this uh, unexpected amount of success and recognition. So I, I don't know, this is a film that sort of deals with like how art has an effect on society but again like i mentioned earlier it has some weird scatological comedy moments there's garbage there's puking there's bruises there's blood and there's shit in the midst of this you know hartley's sort of trademark deadpan style that one thing i will say for sure about this movie is the length um you feel it and uh, unfortunately that's that's something that keeps this from being on the uh, you know upper tier of Hartley movies for me, but I still find the characters if, to be incredibly interesting. If and- a lot of Hal Hartley's movies feel like they could be stage plays, Henry Fool feels like it's a novel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that was his intention. Yeah, I, absolutely. It totally um, you know dovetails with uh, actual Henry Fool's confessions, novel, right. or manuscript with with within the movie but it is even no matter how much you want to rationalize or, or, or defend henry fool and and what it's aiming for the movie is entirely too long yeah it mm-hmm. it, it just feels and, and it takes that level of arbitrary happenings within a hal hartley movie to kind of new heights 
now, there's just a lot of arbitrary things that happen in this movie. Now, there are a couple of reasons why Henry Fool for me, instead of being an F, is a D minus <laughs> uh, film. Uh, number one, the only person who, in whom Hal Hartley's style of dialogue fits naturally at all is a self-important poet. That's the only kind of person <laughs> who, speaking his lines, would actually feel like a real, like something I would recognize from from life. Touche. Um, so I think that fits better, and it made me warm up to a li- to the movie a little more. Um, just because I didn't have that complete 100% total disconnect from it. Uh, I also believe that that his that Hal Hartley's approach works much better with a satirical uh, sort of tale like this about art as opposed to something about interpersonal relationships. But let's be clear. All of Hal Hartley's films are satires. They all are. Right, but being... I, I just feel like this being more pointed towards the art world as opposed to pointed towards interpersonal relationships. Right. Like, I believe that approach fits better. Um, and uh, there were a couple, and there were there was more like straight comedy uh, that I kind of got. I think the I think the scene, probably my favorite scene, and probably the part where I thought uh, the movie was going to go somewhere I would actually like it. Uh, was when they go to the publisher's house and the scene the publisher is having with a uh, with his two guys. Uh, where the internet. Just, They're talking yeah, about the digital revolution. Yeah, it's it's complete nonsense, but it's really funny and it it feels like something out of like a Charlie Kaufman movie or something. But it's not complete nonsense. It's it's funny that it's dead on accurate. Well, I but I, it's just their approach to it. like just the way you can clearly tell no one no one in the room knows what they're talking about. <laughs> right, but it is dead on accurate. Like, actually, like, listen to that dialogue. It is bang on accurate. I'm, I mean, it's not, I, I, it's not hard to predict entirely what the internet would be in 97. It had been commercially <laughs> open for several years at that point. But, sure. But it is still bang on. Like, he, 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 <laughs> anyway, I, I thought that scene aged the movie better and i was hoping i was hoping then the movie would go into the art world more and we'd be seeing more critics and we'd be seeing more uh, like like stuff that i just feel fits uh hal hartley's approach better and uh, that didn't happen unfortunately yeah i kind of felt that way too a little bit i mean we sort of stay with the uh the main characters and uh, there was a certain point especially once the poem you know gets published on the internet and there's all this uh, a claim for it. I was curious that other than like we see news footage on the TV or something, I was I was more interested in how this was affecting, you know, society in a way, or at least make some more commentary about you know the philosophy of art and its uh, you know its its effect on people. Because I think he's he, he's he, he's he's got his ideas and themes there. Not sure that they're fully realized because of that. Because he sort of wants to focus on, you know, what we're used to from a Hartley movie is just like sticking with the main characters and sort of figuring them out. All these very blue collar characters speaking this kind of dialogue, and uh, that—that's the theme. That's the theme in all of his films. Yeah. It's just a little more integrated into the plot yeah. <laughs> of 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 Henry Fool. The idea that um, that art exists, or, or that. A blue collar uh, guy, if he wants to learn French, will will learn French, uh, even if it's just for a girl. Uh, you know, I I like that about because I, I I I've seen so many real life examples of that. Like it's not 
it's it's so accurate. I know tons <laughs> of people with you know it, it's obviously still a a small sliver of right. the whole population, but the bottom line is there are so many examples of just working class guys that are incredibly educated on their own. Yeah, yeah legitimately. And I love the fact I, that Martin Donovan's character is like that. Um, the the mechanic in the unbelievable truth, uh, like when he actually describes, like there's this long sequence in the unbelievable truth where he describes like the concept of how gear ratios work in a transmission, and and I. I <laughs> I, I like that. I really do. And it's the same thing that obviously Kevin Smith completely stole for uh, um, for Clerks, right? With the right. very elegant, spoken pop culture nerds working at a convenience store. I love that. And the fact that they took it to the, the global spectrum of, 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 of art um, in Henry Fool, it just seems like a logical – if you follow the every movie should be bigger than the last one, yeah. seems like a logical place to go. I sure. I definitely appreciate that, especially after um, like for the Soderbergh episode, I watched Bubble, and there's something I really hate um, that almost feels like condescending in that uh, when directors make movies about Middle America, especially when it's with non actors, it's always so humorless and it always just shows life. Life is so bleak and horrible when yeah. it's like I've lived, you know, in the Midwest for most of my life, and that's not how it is. Like people are just <laughs> unhappily trudging to their jobs just because you escaped and became an artist in Hollywood doesn't mean everyone fucking hates. It seems like yeah. so many movies about blue collar people like try to ape Killer of Sheep. Um, whether or not it's no, because Killer of Sheep is yeah. pointedly it's pretty, it's pretty okay soul crushing. Yeah, yeah. In, but in that's, that you look at this. Yep, but it's not. But that's not. But I mean, that's thematically relevant for Killer of Sheep, where it's not always for us. So I do appreciate yeah. that Hal Hartley makes movies about blue collar people where they're not just all. And then again, though, if it was just if there just wasn't that level of disconnect, I'd be able to actually enjoy it as opposed to uh, well, intellectually appreciate it. Patrick, did you not find the scene in Henry Fool where Henry teaches Simon the the three different uses of there with the piano? <laughs> like that's funny. Like to me, that is really no. Funny. That was oh, that was I, funny. I didn't, I didn't find it funny, but it was definitely like okay. That is, a, I re- I at least recognize this as a joke, <laughs> which, was, okay. which was such a relief. <laughs> oh, it's like you turn into Homer. Oh, joke funny. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah, like I, I recognize, uh, and it, it was more just that you know, it was it was more just I like you were talking about like Christopher Guest movies. It wasn't laugh out loud funny, but I did. That is you know that is witty. You know, yeah. No, I, I, there's more of a wittiness and, to it, and and I, and I, I really love the Kevin Corrigan arc. He's a very small character. <laughs> what is that? I don't know what it has to do with the movie. It seemed like it was just a completely different movie that he pasted yeah. onto this one. Really, <laughs> the, the 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 point where he kind of gets involved, like with the politician, and you actually you see that whether this guy's wearing a suit or not, he's still just a bully. And I <laughs> yeah. like the way they he follow sort of regresses his, back. But he but he but he regresses back because not because he's learned anything about. You know, being a bully or anything, but only because the the candidate disappointed him because he didn't achieve success. To me, that is a. To me, for some reason, that there's something delightfully American about the arc of Kevin Corrigan's wow. character in that movie. It's that the the issue is not 
whether I'm a bully or whether um, or, or whether this politician was a bully. But the, the, the thing is that he's a he's a failure because he didn't get elected. Not because of any moral stance or whatever. Yeah. Like it's, it's all so irrelevant. The entire benchmark for being good is succeeding, and and it, it has nothing else factors into it. And and I, it's it's just a little morality play right in the middle of Henry Fool, which does not really like it. Okay, Henry Fool acts as a morality play on how people access and judge art, but to see that. On top of it, it's an interesting contrast, and it's quite subtle. It's off, yeah. very much off in the background, and you see it even with the the little girl Pearl, right? Because he's supposed to be watching her, and he's doing whatever he's doing. It doesn't matter whether he's just sitting there smoking a cigarette, doing nothing, or whether he's campaigning for this politician. Either way, that little girl is going to be getting ignored, or worse, later in the film, beaten. Mm-hmm. I, I just, mm-hmm. I, you're right. Maybe it's not directly to do with Simon and Henry, uh, and and to a degree, I guess Faye, but it is another element where where you say, well, you know, Hartley has these things on the brain, and he's yeah. going to craft a few other things. Sure, it 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 pads out the runtime, right? <laughs> which at a certain point becomes like uh, Henry Fool is by no means my favorite movie <laughs> by this filmmaker, but um, but I, I I must admit it has many great scenes and the character. Of Henry Fool might be the ultimate realization of what Hartley writes as the mysterious, angry man child. <laughs> like he, he I, I've never seen Thomas J. Ryan in anything, but yeah, he's primarily a theater and, actor, and he's good. He's really, yes. really, really good. Um, yeah, definitely so good. It's, it's, I even enjoyed him at points it's, in this yeah. movie. It's interesting that Harley decided to, um, you know, make him a pedophile and sort of add a whole layer of tension later in the movie. Um, like, because, I mean, I, I honestly didn't think he was going to fall, you know, uh, fall prey to his weaknesses once again. But that the, the fact that the whole town is aware of, you know, his transgressions and then, you know, the little girl and all that, like that, that was a very... Uh, audacious element to throw in there even if it's you know there's no not not exactly a payoff but it's just like well it's, it's, it's unfortunate it, it there's a payoff to us as the audience right when he when he kills Kevin yeah. Court's yeah, character yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because the, the 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 courts don't recognize that but you as the audience it's it's I I don't know whatever some there's many different levels of irony i guess and, mm-hmm. and that's one where the audience that, that's the level of irony where the audience is aware but the care but the characters or the some of the characters in the movie aren't yeah but sure I, I also like the idea that uh, henry's a blowhard and a, and a not very particularly talented he, he it's like he he knows the he knows the um notes but can't play the music but he still is an excellent vessel for simon to mm-hmm find his voice and and then you you get the point where simon has found his voice and gotten his confidence and now has the capacity to do what henry is doing and he uses that to understand that henry's work is not very good (laughs) i like that i I really that that is a great you know sort of tragedy irony there's a lot of elements in there and i think it's a great moment in the movie where simon goes to bat for henry because he's his friend but does not go to bat as a 
like a, a critical assessment of his work, and that creates an interesting conflict moment later on in the in in the movie. Um, of course, every fucking ounce of Henry Fool is completely undermined in Faye Grimm. Whether that's intentional or not, uh, this is the sequel that he yeah, made, where where I now Henry is this crazy super spy, and his work is like basically yeah. the enigma machine of of uh, like Chilean early seventies Chilean politics, and and they basically everything that is funny and ironic and interesting and 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 tragic in. Henry Fool is completely undermined by the plotting oh, God, nonsense yeah. of of Fagrim, and it's funny because Fagrim is the only Hal Hartley movie that I've seen that actually has a plot, and it, yeah, it, no, it, I mean it, 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 it's way overplotted. I mean that's the joke, right? That's yeah. again the joke is Jeff Goldblum walking in and delivering like five uninterrupted moments where I don't even think the actor breathes of exposition. Like it's amazing how much <laughs> Jeff Goldblum can talk in 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 in. I do remember that, and then sure. all this sort of super spy shit going on with all of his actors. It's all the same actors again. I, I, I'm sure that's the joke, and I find it really funny that I hate Fagrim, and I hate Fagrim because Hal Hartley is not doing what I think Hal Hartley should do, which I think is Patrick's issue for hating Hal Hartley in general. So there's <laughs> layers of where you can sit, of how you hate. Yeah. And I'm sure that when Hal Hartley made Faye Grimm, it wasn't an incompetent film made by accident. There has to be. It's so done like that, that there has to be a... But you wonder if it's like this whole Lars von Trier self-sabotage thing going on. I, I don't hmm. know. I, I mean, But Faye Grimm is... Is intolerable and it's almost as long. Really? <laughs> as Henry Fool. I it's, was about I was about to say power. this sounds like it might be my favorite Hal Hartley movie. Just <laughs> because just it's nothing like, like a Hal Hartley it's, movie. It's exactly no, it's exactly like if you watch Whit Stillman's new movie, Damsels in Distress, which has not been released yet, but played the festival circuit. It is a ironic mocking of all the tropes of Whit Stillman by Whit Stillman, and I think Faye Grimm. That's weird. Is kind of that as well, and. I guess maybe, uh, I don't know, academically that should be interesting, but it ain't. It's fucking hell on earth to yeah. watch. <laughs> I, so, I, like, all the issues that Patrick has brought up again and again with, uh, um, with Hal Hartley, he's done it in a very polite way. He's not been very angry at all. No. Um, but that all of those things I had with, with Faye Grimm, and then I'm realizing, well, you know, is it me? Like, I, <laughs> I, am, I, no, am I layering on my expectations now? To the I, movie, and I kinda, I'm not judging Faye Grimm for the 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 self-contained satire of just Hal Hartley films that it is using plotting and spy language, which are so far outside of Hartley's purview. <laughs> um, I, I definitely feel that way about his later three films: No Such Thing, Faye Grimm, Girl from Monday. All okay, you want to talk about weird get... choices? Why is Girl from Monday <laughs> ten frames a second? There you go, Patrick. Get angry. Why that, ah, that made well, me angry? Faye Grimm. Faye Grimm does that. Almost all of the action sequences in in Faye Grimm, uh, like uh, two frames a second. Uh, like they're it's basically like watching La Jete. Um Like uh, it's uh, basically still shots. The opening credits are done like that as well with your lovely Godardian like uh, frame filling yes. title cards. Um, um, but uh, yeah, like they they often like it's like well we can't afford to shoot an action sequence so we'll just show like five stills and move on. One uh, uh, one final footnote about uh, 
about Henry Fool that's kind of interesting since we were bringing up the, uh, the you know the the, the, the the whole concept of a you know blue, blue collar you know middle class slob sort of you know coming into his own as an artist. The guy that plays Simon in Henry Fool plays none other than uh, Robert Crumb in American Splendor, which oh, obviously has Har- Harvey P. Carr, you know, yeah, it's kind of a blue flower slob that, you know, <laughs> becomes an who's artist. A, who's an intellectual. Yeah, yeah. who's an intellectual. Well, it's, it's, it's an awesome segue because I'm wondering if there's any fans of Daniel Close, the, the, the guy who wrote Ghost World. I'm a, I, um, like, I yeah. like Ghost World. If, yeah, I, if, wow. if there is a similarity of... Uh, Ghost World, and I, I mean more the graphic novel of Ghost World yeah. as opposed to the, mm. the, the Zweigoff movie. Although, I mean, whatever. Um, if there's a if there's a strong similarity between his particular style and Hartley's there is. style, because there's so many elements of that blue collar and art sure. and transcending and broken and multiple broken people meeting and 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 where do we go from here? And the, the girl is always left standing on her own at least that's the way ghost world ends um but then but it but it's yeah. a positive thing it's not a negative thing that the girl is mm-hmm. left on her own uh and y- you wonder i know and that was just perfect that, that you said that the actor was playing robert crumb because of course uh Zweigoff made the crumb documentary and wow and this is factors just... into ghost world his version uh of the film um and steve buscemi could if he had to play characters in the Hartley world, I'm, I'm co- quite comfortably, I'm sure. <laughs> this connecting thread is just... No, I, I never I never thought of that. It's definitely... Uh, there's a lot of... I, I don't want to say... There's the one book that's just a... It's a series of sort of smaller vignettes that just... What is it? Iced Harvest or something? The the Klaus... Uh, mm. um, but it's... Where's Rust when you need them? Yeah, yeah, but... <laughs> Uh, it's ice something, I believe, and it's and it's very similar to a Hal Hartley thing. Um, of course, you know the sort of wooden acting doesn't factor into a comic book, uh, and in fact, the sort of very wordy dialogue adds more to a comic book than a, you know, it fits it better. But true, that's a that's an interesting sort of comparison. It's Ice Haven. Ice Haven. Um, there you go. God bless Wikipedia. Uh, the. Uh... Oh, I forgot what I was going to say. There was another connection. Oh, yeah, the Steve Buscemi directed films. I don't know if you've seen uh, was Trees, it Trees Lounge, Lounge and, and uh, I don't what's think he the did one Delirious, with did what's he? the one with uh, the Affleck brother? Um, uh, Lonesome Jim. Jim. Lonesome Jim. Like those uh, films that's a feel kind of a movie. strong. Yeah. Hal Hartley influenced. Like, but they're a little more sad sack, a little less mm-hmm. angry than right. uh, that. But you know, you. The, I guess ultimately what Hal Hartley boils down to, whether you love the guy or hate the guy, he's kind of like the band that other bands listen to yeah. <laughs> as opposed to achieving the commercial success. And they, there's tons of people that, for whatever reason, feel like they're borrowing or, or repurposing parts of his stuff. But I don't know. Maybe someone could make the argument that um, you know, Hal Hartley is the ironic 90s version of Hal Ashby, who's a little more earnest with his with his stuff I but could, is I also very that. very um there's an element of uh i don't know historical context didactism i don't know what the word is uh for for the way ashby incorporates current themes into these more self-contained mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. stories and um you know and then so there's you know other than the fact that they both have hal as the first name right. um 
which of course is the major artistic connection. Uh, but but <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 think, you I, know, always... like, I mean, obviously Hartley's not the first person to do this. It's just that it seems like for the early burgeoning indies '90s scene, he seems like a bit of a lightning rod. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. And, and you'll either you know respond to that, and I can totally respect not responding to it as well. You know, um, I think we're going to sort of bypass our usual well, we talk talked about, about Faye Graham and yeah, other stuff so I, th- I feel like we touched upon within the discussion of the two films his other work as well yeah. like Simple Men so um, I don't know I encourage everybody to check out um, at least if you want to check out one Hal Hartley movie please check out Trust yeah, um, I, would I, I know this is going to be difficult for you, Patrick, yeah. having only seen, what, four of his movies, but uh-huh. we usually do this at the end, yeah. and I want to do a top three a Hal Hartley movies. Uh, number one is uh, for me would be uh, Henry Fool. Um, D-minus. Yeah, <laughs> solid D-minus film. Uh, number two would be An Unbelievable Truth because it has that one moment where I laughed, and uh, number three would be Trust. Very good. Yeah. Number one, obviously, for me would be Trust. Uh, number two, I'm going to go with uh, a movie we didn't touch upon that I wish I could have rewatched because I remember really digging it at the time I saw it, Amateur, which also has Martin Donovan. Um, number three is Henry Fool. And uh, my top three, would number one would be Trust, um, number two would be uh, Simple Men, and number three would be The Unbelievable Truth. Excellent. And uh, also to conclude, I wanted to point out, for just for a chuckle really quickly, I managed to pick up Henry Fool through Amazon.com used, and I was very excited to put it in my DVD player and watch it f- last night. When um, I mean, I didn't even look at the DVD because it's one of those DVDs where you, it's all pretty it's much double, all... It's double-sided, so double-sided, all the text is on the inner ring. And it's, the inner ring is very small. You know how it is, the text. You don't, even, yeah. you don't even look at it, really. You just assume, okay, I just need to find full screen, widescreen, put it on whatever. And unfortunately, it was the wrong disc. It turned out to be, I think I love my wife. Really? So... But luckily, that, I like rented a, it from iTunes instead. Uh, Tyler Perry movie? No, it's Chris Rock uh, and Louis C.K. helped write it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned well, Tyler Perry, though, <laughs> um, that's going to be our next official – well, no, actually, that's later in the January when we're going to talk about his work. But that's our next official director we're talking about. Is it? Yeah, I thought, because, uh, I because thought Gus Van Sant was. Gus Van Sant's in February. It's oh, okay. the first week of February. I just really wanted to get to Tyler Perry because yeah. I'm excited because I don't have excited. any experience with him. And, He's a uh, fascinating filmmaker. Uh, yeah, that's what I hear. Um, <laughs> basically, the modern black exploitation filmmaker. Okay, okay. I'm on board. We'll, well check it out. But with trust, you could easily make the mistake because there's a David Schwimmer, yes, that's like, true. online that's predatory. Because we, you, I, I, Jim was on our uh, on the movie club podcast a while ago when we did Crash versus Crash, and I not that the David Schwimmer trust even got a theatrical release, but you, you, you hope. I, I don't know. I've not seen it. I, I so I don't. I'm it's, not it's, it's it's pretty good. Anything, it's, but, it's very but, melodramatic. But, but, but you don't want. You don't want anyone who was born in the 70s and, you know, sort of associates their, you know, coming of age filmmaking with the sort of Gen X sort of 90s whatever, right? Like that's where you were just like had the capability of watching everything, which would correspond to uh, Hal Hartley. Uh, No one would want the 2011 trust to 
supersede yeah. the 1991 trust. Right. Just know uh, in there's the same two. way that Agus's crash has sort of <laughs> taken the title from David Cronenberg's crash. And yeah. uh, if you want to change the pace, go ahead and try Antitrust, which is <laughs> oh, kind of like your Antitrust. Shut your mouth. <laughs> it's the Michael Crichton. <laughs> yeah. I, it's Brian Phillip at PPP. Yeah, yeah. If you, I mean, you want to take a I'll break from crash. you want to take a break from something that's simultaneously satirical and earnest, why don't you watch a movie that has nothing to say, like uh, Antitrust? <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks again, Kurt, for being on the episode. I really enjoyed hearing your take on Hartley. It was great. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks. Um, yeah, so l- like I mentioned earlier at the top of the show, but we're going to have a bonus episode and um, also an episode that was lost for the rest of December and then um, be be pretty pumped for our uh, best of the year episode early in January. Absolutely. So uh, until then, please visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Like I said, uh, email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned. And you got a lot of fun episodes coming up. And Merry Christmas, everybody. Aww. Yeah. Happy holidays. Enjoy yourself. And uh, hope you get some awesome presents under that tree. <laughs> Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. We will see you soon. Goodbye. With- I really am so disappointed yeah. that she was killed. We're all disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> fucking selfish. But I would love to see her grow as a filmmaker. <laughs> I totally agree, though. I mean, it's like... Wait. Oh, that was such a strange <laughs> sentence. How <laughs> 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 Hartley.